0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep, celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years, March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. And the law firm of Davis Malm. Whether you're a buyer, seller, investor, or lender, their business attorneys understand that each deal has unique needs and requirements, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com.
1: I'm Jim Bradley, ahead on Boston Public Radio. NBC political director Chuck Todd joins us for his weekly political roundup, including his one on one with New Hampshire's Governor Chris Sununu about the lies of Fox News. And the City Council in Boston has approved Mayor Wu's rent control proposal with rental prices through the roof in Boston and inflation-freezing housing sales, we'll open the lines to hear from you. Is rent control part of a
2: solution? I'm Marjorie Egan. Boston Globe Business columnist Shirley Leung will detail what comes next on Mayor Wu's rent control proposal and inquiries from Auditor Diana DiZaglio into the state legislature and alleged racism at the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. I am Marjorie Yeegan. Welcome to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. Where are we tomorrow again? We are at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. We're very excited about it.
1: We are. So we're joined now by Chuck Todd. Chuck's the political director for NBC News, as well as the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston. That's Channel 10 of most providers here. He also co-hosts Meet the Press Now on NBC Now and hosts the Chuck Toddcast with new episodes every Wednesday. Hello there, Chuck Todd.
3: Well, good, morning. Good, good to, morning. good to hear you guys together. I know it's you know, a rare right. occurrence. I haven't, I haven't got, I haven't gotten the, uh, the the you know the double team from you guys here in a while, so I look forward to well,
2: it. Well, Jim has been sloughing off. Is the sad state of affairs, but I've been on assignment
1: actually. Is what <laughs> I believe right. We call oh, he's it. He's been on, on assignment. assignment. That's assignment. what.
2: That's what, what Bill Caribbean O'Reilly island always used to say, remember? The right. What
1: island Which that...
3: Caribbean, <laughs> yeah, Caribbean island are you on assignment?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: On? Wait for no, the report.
2: No one was on vacation. By the way, there. and
3: I'm not kidding. But I'm not kidding. I do have somebody who may come on my show this week who is wondering, can do you have to tell tell them where I'm gonna be coming from if you interview me? <laughs> oh.
2: You <laughs> you mean...
3: know, some elected officials don't like people to know where they vacation. <laughs>
2: Especially if it's like Turks and Caicos or something like that? Is that what you're talking about? Oh, no, that's
3: right. Yeah, no, it's not there because we don't have those resources.
2: (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, I have to admit I've been on an anti-Fox news crusade for for quite some time, uh, having been sued and having made mistakes as a journalist. It drives me crazy what they've been able to get away with over there. Um, But now as this Dominion lawsuit proceeds – We're finding out more and more wacky things, Uh, for example, that uh, Tucker Carlson, who is now misrepresenting what was on uh, January 6th, apparently he said uh, for President Trump that he hated him passionately, and Rupert Murdoch (laughs) (laughs) hated him passionately. Those were his words. I hate him passionately. And Rupert Murdoch, who is the chief guy who's 89 years old, but apparently quite with it, um, talked about how... Uh, President Trump, he was concerned that President Trump, after the 2020 election, was uh, growing, quote unquote, increasingly mad, as in crazy. Uh, so, um, where does this put Fox, uh, and how do people that are in the sway of Fox get out of the sway of this station? Maybe that's not your job, no, but I do wonder about it. it.
3: I, and that's that, no, you're not wrong. And I wonder about that. You know, will there be. Are there going to be viewer consequences, right? Like, yeah. look, when we had an anchor, a prominent anchor lie, okay, I get caught lying, we, of course, at NBC News, removed that anchor, period. Yes. Right? That person was no longer allowed on NBC News. I don't want to get into it, but we did it. I mean, We know it, who it
2: is. He was a big star. I believe you're talking about Brian star, Williams. It,
3: that's right. Yeah. It was not an easy decision. No. Uh, to do to an individual, but it was an easy decision to protect the integrity of NBC News. And so, you know, so I look at it and look, we were, we were going to get punished by viewers and our credibility would be punished. The problem with Fox is they don't have credibility with anybody other than their own people. So the question really is, so they're going to, so they're, oh my God, Fox is losing credibility. Marjorie's not, paying, you know, you, you already didn't, they already didn't have credibility with you, right? Right. Before this Dominion lawsuit, they already didn't have credibility with me, you know, and with many other sort of uh, people. But the question I wonder is, for the people that they still had credibility with, are they going to know that Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity didn't really believe in what didn't really, you know, sort of treated them as sort of functionaries to get them rich, that they just basically, you know, used them and, and, and lied to them regularly because they just told them what they wanted to hear so that they would keep coming. You know, they were nothing more than, a, than an advertising dollar in their mind. Are those voters going to know that's what happened? Are they going to consume the Dominion lawsuit that way? And will it in long term turn people away from those folks? I that I don't know. You know, people tune into Fox now, not because they want the truth, because they want they don't want the truth. They want to be told what they want to hear. So I don't know if there's punishment for here. The question is whether elected Republicans. You know, does be going on Fox alienate the middle of the electorate, right? And that could be right. Does all things Tucker Carlson alienate the middle of the electorate, and that could be the case? And it may be. So it really, I do, I do think it puts Republican elected officials who would like to believe they're not uh, drinking the Trump Kool Aid in a tough spot because they still got to talk to the Kool Aid drinkers in their mind. But can you go on Fox and do that? I don't know. But I, you know, you're asking me whether. The Fox viewer will will consume everything we're consuming. I think a lot of it will depend on whether there's an actual trial. Because if there's an actual trial, it'll be hard for Fox viewers not to know what's going
1: on. Yeah, well, I would say that even if they did learn what's going on, just like they learned uh, all the warts on Donald Trump, they may not care because, as you say, they want to be preached to, and if the preacher is mm-hmm. imperfect, even if a, if a liar. They can handle it. And speaking of lying, by the way, and how people are going to handle this, Chris Sununu, who I do not consider to be one of the lunatics in the Republican Party, is on with you and uses the same fourth grade line that we get in our comments during the show. They all lie. They all lie. I mean, how pathetic was that, Chuck Todd? I
3: know. It was. And then, you know, a little bit of pushback, and I think he realized toward the end that it was sort of. A silly thing to have done and he tried to sort of backtrack at that but you know that's my point here you're like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. you know you want to sit here and do that let's do apples to apples when a prominent person got caught lying in our air they were taken off the air
4: period and by the Never way
3: Chuck, nbc news ever again that's what a news organization
2: does i was just going to say brian williams was the anchor of the nightly news he was like in that triumvirate at a time when this was a huge big deal Mm -hmm. you know less so now because less fewer people watch the evening news at six o'clock but then it was a huge loss and frankly um he was a very talented guy i used to watch him at 11 o'clock on msnbc and i miss him very talented guy
3: it's a a, a bummer it's a bummer that you know he got to a place where he ended up going down that road. Yeah, um, It can happen to a lot of good people. Very talented broadcaster. And it's a real, I think he did a great job at sort of um, at communicating to people what they needed to know. And it's a bummer, but credibility matters. And, it ma- you know, he was, he, look, it was, it was going to, but, you know, ironically, we made a business decision too. We didn't, you know, we did it as a journalistic organization, but we also believed that it was going to hurt our bottom line if we kept somebody who knowingly misled their audience on the air to deliver the news, right? So we, were, we made both a journalistic decision, but we also knew our audience actually judged us on whether we were liars or not. The problem we have here is the market that Fox, you know, Fox is competing with Alex Jones. They're not competing right. with real journalists. Right. So, you know, Tucker Carlson is basically just Alex Jones on top. There's no difference
1: anymore. Well, it's also we- analogous to Trump saying the other day, and I totally subscribe to this, sadly, that if he's indicted, his numbers are going to go up. I mean, it's it just – it's more like –
3: Well, inside the GOP, they might. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Inside the GOP, they might.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. But, Chuck, one last thing about this. When we get in our text messages, people conflate. For example, the Steele dossier that had Trump cavorting with prostitutes mm-hmm. in Russia and turned out not to be true. Mm-hmm. People were reporting on that. It was a mistake. People corrected the mistake. But people, I think, that, that don't know the journalism business conflate intentional lies like what they're doing at Fox with a maybe we shouldn't have reported on it mistake which people corrected with
3: bad journalistic decisions right that's right look look BuzzFeed and CNN made terrible journalistic decisions in publishing the steel dossier it was I vehemently and publicly chastised Ben Smith the editor-in-chief at the time of BuzzFeed and any journalist who did it Ben Smith to his credit came on my air to defend his decision in doing it Well, we had a robust debate about it. And my whole thing was, you've not verified this. Why do this? You're only. And by the way, I do think it harmed everybody's credibility. Yeah. That was my. Because I knew it was going to get used. Even though BuzzFeed did not have the reputation that other news organizations had, you know, it was developing one. And there were people there that journalists respected, like Ben Smith. And the minute they did that, it was a stain on everybody. And that's, you know, unfortunately, that is. We're on a, you know. Look, it's a war over truth that we're in in this country right now, and every journalist that does seek truth has to realize they, It is not just their own reputation that's on the line; it's all of our reputations.
2: Yeah. That's on the line. Well, you know,
3: I, I do think about that more often than I think. I'm, I think that. You know, I'd like to think i do. I hope I do. I hope other journalists
1: do, too. By the way, uh, I want you to know it's your fault because alternative facts actually happened, as you well know, on Meet the Press. <laughs> and it's been downhill from yeah. there ever since I know. from, from <laughs> Kellyanne Conway. Hey, you, so, know, you know,
3: that's the point. Calling it out, bringing attention to it, has only, like, galvanized yeah. some of these folks on the right. You know, you know? They're,
2: they're finally— We they want
3: alternative facts. We don't want the truth. Give us something different. Like, they actually, it's crazy.
2: You know, just in case people don't know, Kellyanne and George are finally thrown in the this. tower. They're getting divorced. Okay, she's, she's working for Fox. He's on uh, other stations criticizing uh, the uh, right-wing lunacy all the time.
1: You know, uh, Chuck Todd, uh, this, I think a lot of people consider this whole D.C. crime bill killing as an inside story that no one cares about. I worry that it's uh, uh, indicative of how the Democrats are going to behave leading up to 2024 they don't want to be accused of being mm-hmm. soft on crime so they join with the republicans when every republican a la cpac is trashing the most vulnerable people in america trans people mm-hmm. are uh democrats going to take the same strategy on that too
3: well i don't think on the transgender stuff but i think on the border and crime they are and i think you saw it a little bit also on the border right where suddenly have biden more open to some of these...
1: The, the family um, detention tougher, stuff and the asylum right. denials, right.
3: And what I find interesting is how muted the criticism from the left has been. Mm-hmm. I do think that, look, this is, you know, Biden, I think, bought progressives by fighting for their, for the for more progressive agenda the first two years. He got 70% of what he fought for. and I, And I do think progressives, at least the smart ones, Realize that hey, we are kind of a political liability in some places. You know, we did, we have been the single reason why the state of Florida is no longer in play. You know, because of the S word in in South Florida. So, you know, I do think that that the progressive movement is maturing in a good way here, where they sort of uh, a pragmatic streaks coming to them. But I, I understand why you're asking on trans. I don't think so in trans. I really think, I really think the the cruelty is what's going to be... uh, the? I I mean, when you look at the intentional cruelty that these bills have, I think, you know, I just saw an interesting study of of women voters, independent women voters and Republican women voters
4: Mm -hmm. in Arizona and
3: Pennsylvania. And it's more qualitative. It's very hard to share. But it was a big deck in it. But the bottom line is this. These Republican women uh, and independent women uh, are not happy with the Democrats, but they're scared of the Republicans. Mm. Okay, they are scared of what the Republicans are doing, and they are voting against anything Trump touches. And they're voting on the abortion issue. The abortion issue was the single most important issue to, to independent women, and it was much more of a factor in in the 22 elections, I think, than po- that exit polls captured. And and I do think that in that score, this is where the trans stuff, because I do think. Mothers don't like this. This is their kids you're, you're, you're being yeah. cruel to. hope you're right. Hope you know? you're right. so I, 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 I really, I don't think, I see why you're asking that. I, I do think that there are certainly some Democrats that don't like the woke stuff, and don't want to be associated with all the different pronoun this and, pro, you know, there's that stuff. But I don't think on the cruelty to individual kids, no, I don't think Democrats are going to be that, that Machiavellian. I don't.
2: And you know, speaking of abortion, the New York Times has done uh, great reporting on these this suit by these women in Texas um, mothers, some of them with other children who needed abortions for medical reasons they one of them be, almost was becoming septic and almost died. Uh, mm-hmm. Another one had a fetus with no brain all these that was causing uh, infection in her body I mean these horrific tales. And yeah. I, there's going to be a lot of those, I think, between now and the election, considering the bans on abortion and physicians being afraid to go against them. And you, I can't help but think, even though you know, Jim often complains that women aren't out in the street protesting, um, or we aren't in general. Um,
1: Men either, by the way. Yeah,
2: it, right. Yeah. The, I don't think people who are so-called pro-life or anti-abortion are keen on letting mothers die uh, in states like Texas.
3: Look, I think I, I do think that that you know the Desantis is going to, of all the all the bills this legislature is going to pass in the next three months, that sort of is all going to be viewed as sort of Desantis preparing to run for president. It's that six-week abortion ban that he's going to regret more than anything else. He's going to get defined by that. You know, Desantis was the one governor being a little more cautious than some of the yes. in the South with 15 weeks, and at the you know 15 weeks looked a lot more moderate than what Georgia was doing, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, all of that. And now they're going to go six. This is Florida. Florida has a lot of libertarians in it too, right? The same people that were, that didn't like the mask mandate also don't like this. So I, I just think this is, I think this is, they're, they're playing with a lot of fire near gas tanks and propane tanks when it comes to abortion bans.
1: Hey, you know, Chuck Todd, we only have a couple of minutes left, but Marjorie reminded me of a topic that she and I talk about almost all the time, which is how uh, uh, pathetically uh, passive the American people are in the face of assaults from their government or the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, one day demonstration. And then we take to tweeting for the next few months in France. <laughs> there are millions of people on the street over raising the retirement age just shutting down trains Flights, the dock workers are up in arms and they're they're rolling strikes there. Why is it that so much of the rest of the Western world does what French people, workers are doing now, and we do a one-day deal and then retreat to our little caves no matter how egregious the hit on us is? What's that about? Well,
3: I mean, I might argue that we sort of – we trust. It, it, I know we're, I'm about to say something that feels counter to everything we talk about over the last couple of years, but I do think that this is a, an odd comfort and trust in our own system. Mm. You know, when we see democracy, when we see protests multiple days in a row in another country, do you think that country is stable or unstable?
2: Mm. Yeah, good point. Right? So I, I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. know, I, I, I just,
3: you know, so I, I think that there is a odd comfort in that, that we sort of trust our system that this stuff works itself out. And if you look at it from the long view, I mean, I always say I'm a long-term optimist and a short-term pessimist. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the next 10 years are going to suck. Okay. I think we, <laughs> oh, you know, good. we, we are just going <laughs> to, but, but do I think, you know, my goodness, look at the 1950s. I just went through some old transcripts of Joseph McCarthy on Meet the Press. The guy oh. was a blatant anti-Semite on the air in the 1950s. And that was reelected in, mm-hmm. in, in Wisconsin. Not in, like, in Idaho, okay? So, I mean, he's, like, using the phrases, 30 pieces of silver being sold. I mean, he's just, my point was, it's, like, as bad as everybody and so many bad actors we have right now, I swear to God it used to be worse, okay? And it's, like, so my point is, (laughs) I I know, we eventually, you know, Churchill was right, you know, we exhaust every bad idea before we finally do the right thing. But we eventually do the right thing, and it's awfully close. I'm not going to sit here and say a couple of people may not fall off the cliff, but for the most part, we'll
2: probably
1: avoid going up. Boy, I feel a hell of a lot I better. I do, too. Thank you, Chuck. I'm, I'm really... bucked up.
2: Bucked up. It could be All worse. Right. I think that's the way to look it at could this. Be worse. <laughs> okay, hey, we're Chuck. out of time. <laughs> get
3: your Get your bumper sticker. That's America right. <laughs> it could
1: be worse. Could be worse. I love that.
2: Chuck, thanks a lot.
1: See you, Chuck. Talk to you next week. All right, my guys. Chuck Todd
2: is political director of NBC News, NBC political director, I should say, moderator of Meet the Press, co-host of Meet the Press now on NBC News, and host, I love this, of the Chuck Toddcast, new episodes every Wednesday. You can also meet uh, catch Meet the Press Sunday mornings, 1030, NBC, Boston, Channel 10, on most providers.
1: We only have I've, 10 more years to go through. This is that's that's right. like T- a piece of 10, cake.
2: 10 sucky years, that's what he said.
1: Beautiful. Okay.
2: After a quick break, the Boston City Council just voted to approve Mayor Wu's rent control proposal. We're going to open the lines to hear what you think about the idea. You think it's great? or do you think this is going to make uh, more condo conversion and more drent- gentrification? happen. The number is 877-301-8970. Uh, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 897-GBH.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. We're live at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. In a vote yesterday, uh, 11 in favor, 2 opposed, the Boston City Council approved Mayor Michelle Wu's proposed cap on rent increases in the city to 10% or less, depending on inflation. This is just the first step for advocates of rent control or rent stabilization. There's a long way to go. A lot of powerful people have to sign on, like the legislative leaders and the legislature, as well as the governor. And of course, on the other side, there'll be organizations like the Greater Boston Real Estate Board spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars working to ensure this doesn't pass. Meanwhile, rent prices are surging. The average cost of an apartment in the city was $365 more last year than the year before. That's a 14% increase, 4% more than would be legal under Wu's proposal. In a poll by an organization called Change Research, the issue came out this way: 68% of the people statewide said they strongly or somewhat supported Wu's proposal. 22%, that's three to one margin, were in opposition ten said they didn't have an opinion. Somerville also hopes to move forward a home rule petition on this issue, Cambridge maybe too. We want to know where you are on this rent control proposal. We'll describe it a little better in a minute. At 877-301-8970. And let me put another question on the table, Marjorie, if I can. Not only where are you on this rent control? Are you as outraged as I am by the fact that Boston cannot decide with its yeah, own it's elected officials. Or any
2: other city what or town. Exactly
1: what its rent policy will be. But rather, it has to be approved by legislators from 351 cities and towns and a governor. It is insane. It's called a home rule petition. 877 8970 Can I spend 10 seconds just describing this proposal? Yes,
2: and I'm not sure the home rule petition works for anybody anywhere, does it? I mean, maybe i things. make something. Like
1: I don't know, but I know there's something. No, I don't know. I mean, I don't follow all the legislators. Liquor licenses?
2: What is just businesses of
1: theirs? That's not a home rule petition. They have to be actually approved at the legislative level, I think. They but in ha- any case. Okay, they have to be approved. Why, why should
2: the legislature vote on a liquor license in Boston?
1: They shouldn't. Absolutely. By the way, let me just say this. If it turns out a policy being adopted by a place like Boston or Cambridge or, you know, Lexington, whatever, if the policy in the town or city will affect people beyond the borders of the town or city, then it should be a state legislative issue. When the decision is purely about what should rent levels be and should they be regulated in Boston why is it anybody's right in the other 350 cities and towns to pass? In fact, let me just say this before I describe this rent control thing. For those of you who don't know, rent control, the repeal of rent control was in the ballot, I think, in 1994. Right. Three cities uh, had rent control then. I think it was Boston, Cambridge, and Brookline. Am I right Correct. about that? Okay. Those three cities that had rent control voted overwhelmingly to keep it. The 348 cities and towns that did not have rent control, which weren't affected, voted to get rid of it, voted to get rid of it. And as a result, statewide, I think it was 51 to 49, this thing was repealed. And by the way, let me just say one other thing about this proposal. Okay, Two Jim, other things.
2: You're
1: wound up. Woo's, I am wound up. This WU's proposal uh, is not a mandate. It is a. It is gives the right to any city or town through its legislative process to adopt a, uh, a petition to make— to impose uh, rent stabilization in that community, it's not a mandate kind of thing. What she would do, by the way, is a ten percent max. Uh, uh, the what is it? Four percent, four percent above inflation, right? So mm-hmm. if inflation was two percent, the increase would be six percent. If inflation was nine percent. Then it would be capped at ten. It's more moderate very than other modest, rent control proposals modest. around the country, including in places like California. Number two, to deal with developers and those who say it's going to harm new development, she brilliantly, I think, exempted uh, new development from rent control for the first fifteen years, so it shouldn't be a problem there. Exempts small uh, uh, small buildings. I think it's three family units. Maybe it's even more, but three family units. She crafted it very moderately. Uh, and I think to the credit of the city council here, some of whom wanted a more uh, uh, dramatic proposal, uh, they decided this was probably the best one that had a chance to make it through the legislature. So we want to know where you are on this thing: uh, rent control, rent stabilization. And how do you feel about the, the, the procedural thing that the legislature has got to pass on something that has an effect on nobody except those people who live in Boston? I'm done.
2: <clears throat> I think one of the big problems she's going to have with this is there's no means test. And the you asked her about
1: that last time, and we listened this morning. She actually didn't answer the question directly mm-hmm. as to why there's no means thing.
2: Yeah, there used to be in the old rent control, even though no, there didn't. Were... No, they didn't. And well, the one okay. that was repealed,
1: and no, no. Okay, I don't then think there so. wasn't. You're, I'm sorry, you're right. There uh-huh. was
2: not. But that was a proposal that people on the other side made yeah. that there should be, because what was happening is a lot of wealthy people were in rent control apartments, and they were meant for people that were not wealthy, um, and and it was abused in in that sense.
1: That but, was the biggest part of the anti campaign in Cambridge. By the way, the head of GBH at that time. Uh, was uh, in a rent-controlled yep. apartment. superior court the-
2: judge was in a rent-controlled apartment. A city councilor in Cambridge was for mayor for yeah. Cambridge for a while. He was in a rent-controlled apartment. There were lots of uh, people that were in rent-controlled apartments. And that's one of the fears this time that, that it could happen again. But, you know, it, the situation wasn't nearly as dire in, in the 90s as it is that's now. That's a wonderful point. I mean, what did one of these stories say, that rent went up in – climbed 14%, fourteen percent I just said that fourteen percent. Fourteen percent in one year. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that the landlord's getting a little greedy here, you know. I mean there are downsides to rent control. If you lived in a city with rent control, you notice that the rent control apartments looked a mess. They were not kept up by their landlords. Some. That was their excuse. They couldn't afford to fix the places up. But it did enable in Brookline where I live No, lived, no, excuse
1: me. I was a lawyer who dealt with rent control uh-huh. in the South Bronx. To say they couldn't afford to keep it up is not true. Well, that's
2: what they would say. In many cases,
1: they chose not to keep it up. That's what they
2: would say. And a lot lot of these apartments were right near where I live on Beacon Street, and they were in in disrepair. On the other hand, it enabled a whole lot of people that were low-income to live in Brookline to go to the Brookline schools. And once rent control was gone, they were gone. It also brings in a lot of condo conversion because – Landlords will say, Well, yeah, hey, okay, I don't true. want to be told how much to rent, so I'm going to forget the rent. I'm going to go um, um, and convert my apartment to, to condo. 10% so-
1: is not enough for these landlords. 10% a double digit Listen, increase. Listen, I think is we're, not in a, we're, in,
2: we're in an emergency. Not only is rent control, uh, uh, the, the rent increase is a huge problem, but on the front page of the Globe today is a story about how, with the interest rates so high, People that might want to sell their homes, particularly people that are retirees and want yeah, to downsize, yeah, yeah. they't want to do it because they don 't want to have to get a mortgage someplace else at six percent or seven percent mm-hmm. or whatever it's going to be um you know if the Fed ever decides to stop raising interest rates so it's we're just squeezed, and I think that's what's pushing a lot of this too it's gotten it's gotten out of hand Jim
1: so where are you on this rent stabilization proposal? Uh, by the mayor of Boston, and just to make me happy, feel free to trash the legislative process if uh, you so choose. Let's start in Lexington with David. David, what's up?
5: Hi. Uh, I'm both a renter and a landlord, and um, I'm totally with you, Jim, that that renters are struggling and we need to do something. But this proposal – and my property, my rental property is not in Boston, so I don't have an immediate uh-huh. – interest here. But, you know, if it's going to be a statewide thing allowed. Um, no, it would not the, be.
1: By the way, it's, it's not a proposal Boston. for a statewide. It would allow no, no, I, individual yeah. cities and towns to decide right, right, to impose it right. if they chose. Okay,
5: I didn't say that. Well okay, either. I'm sorry. So, so, But the uh, rent board, con- the uh, proposal that Mayor Wu has put forth here, although it seems on the face of it reasonable that landlords could raise the rent inflation plus 6% each year, I think it's 6%, Um, 4%. Yeah, 4%. 4%, okay. There's a provision in there, if you read that whole proposal carefully, where it is actually the rent control board that has the final say. So they can override that inflation plus 4% thing anytime they want to. And small landlords, I'm a small landlord, I struggle to keep my tenants' uh, rent low. Mm -hmm. And I mean low. I got it. (laughs) Yeah, and, and to... You know, if I have a big expense, it's, it's you know, I mean, I start thinking about maybe I should just sell my rental property if it, if it came to my town because it it's a, a difficult. Well, you know, David, all, how
2: small a landlord are you?
5: I have one rental property in Massachusetts and Valley, one. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: I, I don't, I'm not sure, but if you are, well, you're not in the, you not living in the same building. I was going to say if you're that's in the building. That's right. I don't live in the in same, same building. building.
1: By the way, David, the other thing uh, you mentioned, I have read, I would say, every article that's been written. I have not read the actual proposed legislation i have never read that the a rent control board can override the 10 percent. but we will check it and dinner, uh, yeah, yeah I, I hear what you say but i want to i want to read it myself david thank you for your call we appreciate your perspective Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy.
2: i know under the old rules in brookline you did have to go into the rent control board if you wanted to do something and get something different and uh i once when I was in there once i felt like i was the czarina going into the den of the bolsheviks jim why were you there um, because uh, I had bought a con- my first little p- piece of property in Brooklyn, my husband and I, and yeah. he-, he got a fellowship and he wanted to go away for the year and rent the apartment. Mm-hmm. And- <laughs> It wouldn't let you do it. <laughs> well, it, we were grandfathered in, but the the mortgage was like you know those days it was cheap fifteen hundred dollars a month or something. But they told us they could we could only rent it for five hundred dollars because it was under rent control. And I thought, wow, we're not going to be able to go now because we won't be able to afford it. But we were grandfathered in. But the the the, the treatment of people that were condo owners, like I said, you know, it was lucky I wasn't. You know, like Nicholas and Alexandra. you know what I mean? They didn't, they didn't like me very much there at the rent control board. This is
1: a very moderate <laughs> proposal compared to other rent control laws around the country. Is it California that was reading this morning that the maximum increase is even lower than inflation? I'm not... Advancing that as a proposal, but anybody who thinks this is a radical proposal is just you know buying into the rhetoric rather than reading the data. And you know, in all fairness, how can developers? How can a people in the real estate industry say it's going to going to? Uh, uh, Cut the uh, uh, development off at the knees when there's a 15-year exemption. You know
2: what the city of Boston could do? That you hear this from developers and construction people all the time: the number of regulations and the hassles you have to go through for building anything in Boston. Even Michelle Wu talked about this when she was in Chicago. What's up with rent control? Make it less onerous and expensive for developers to build. Right. It has nothing to do with this proposal. I think it, it's well, an independent
1: think, notion that regardless of whether it's rent stabilization it or not. It has to
2: do with, with, make, with sweetening the pot for oh, I see developers. Oh, okay. That's what it has to
1: Let's do. go to Mike and Everett. Hey, Mike, how are you? Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Good afternoon. You too. I fully
6: support uh, Mayor Wu's initiative. First of all, we should credit her because she ran on this promise and she has delivered that she will put something forward. a very forward.
1: good point, Mike.
6: As a a former city councilor in Everett, I wish I only had the opportunity to present this for the city of Everett because out of the thousands of people I talk to on a regular basis in the city, most of them tell me about how they're struggling to make ends meet on a weekly basis. Uh, it's very appropriate because of the 15 year exemption i don't believe we'll stop development in a community especially like ever we have hundreds of units being built currently in our city and we don't want to stop that progress because housing is so desperately needed in the cities and towns of our state but we need to do something to slow down hey, increase of rents
1: mike if this if the legislature approved this thing what's your uh, w- what odds would you give for uh, De Maria, the mayor and the the city council over there adopting rent stabilization for Everett.
6: You know what? I will be on the front lines trying to advocate as a member of the school committee. Currently, yeah. I would advocate that families in Everett need this to stay in the communities in the community. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, potentially as a future candidate for the city council, I would be on the front line to advocate that this is needed for our city. Hey, Mike. And for the state.
1: Mike, did you vote to dump the superintendent or to keep the superintendent?
6: I'm um, talking about rent control today, Jim. So obviously we, we you voted in a dumper. Mike, do me a favor.
1: <laughs> stay on hold. We're going to want to talk to you because we're going to stay on that story. Uh, it's Mike, I'm going to say it's, you said you were a city. Mike McLaughlin, who we've spoken to a lot through the years, former city councilor now in school committee. Mike, stay on hold so we can get your number, and we'll get back to you in the next couple of days. Thank you for the call.
2: Here's a text from a landlord. This is completely unfair to small landlords since when does the government tell any individual what they can charge for a product of theirs? I understand there's a housing crisis. That's why we pay taxes. When is it equitable to put a public burden on a private citizen? Don't say small landlords are exempt. It's only if they live uh, in Mm -hmm. the building where the apartments are. Um, Also, Jim keep talking about it, well the rest of it I don't understand what he means. But anyway, that's the point from a small landlord.
1: Okay, Mitch and Wellfleet, you're next. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Um,
7: I, 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 got, I got, I think, three points. Um, first, uh, you know, uh, you've got a problem with uh, the, the entire structure of state government if you're, uh, you know, going on a rant about home rule petitions. Uh, or, I
1: agree. I do have a real problem uh, with it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, we
7: both yeah. do, but, Mitch. Uh, just, um, yeah, my po- <laughs> my point is it, it's just that it's got nothing to do with rent control. So, you know, you, you want to challenge the entire state government, that's fine, but, but, but that's a different issue. Um, my whoa, whoa, no, 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 it's not a different that, issue. We,
1: Excuse me, it would apply to many things beyond rent control, but it, at this moment moment applies yeah. to this uh, petition coming from the, right. state, the legislature but you'd have to
7: but you'd have to restructure uh, the entire state government okay so that's a different project is what I'm i mean. agree okay my second point is that mayor Wu has repeatedly um emphasized that the vast majority of landlords do not raise their rent anywhere near the camp um every year um and that the vast majority of la- of, of landlords are good landlords um so given that um, why is this necessary at all? What is it? Well, about? first of all,
1: it's necessary because um, you're wrong, Mike, with all yeah, due respect. The average, rent well, well, increase, let me respond. the average rent increase last year was four points higher than the cap that would be in this it law. It was 14%. 14%. So, uh, in fact, Boston. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. But go ahead, third point.
7: That it's not has, has said that's not an issue, um, and and, and you may have noticed, what? What did you um, that, say, Mitch? I missed the beginning. Mayer, Mayor not like the facts. I'm so um, sorry, not Ma- an issue. Oh. Good. Mayor no, Wu. No, will no, will. no, no. I'm just I'm just repeating what Mayor Wu said. She never she said, said that. We've spoken to her, her a she dozen times. Th- she, she
1: said it yesterday. She said the average increase was 14%. That's more than 10%. No, she said the vast – she said the the, the, – Okay, third point, third point, third point.
7: The third point is that everybody's focusing on um, the supposed reasonableness of this 10% cap, okay? But nobody's talking about the fact that uh, there is a provision in there to set up rent control boards um, to issue regulations um, and that that will allow – Uh, rent increases according to what they determine. That's what the
1: first caller said. We we hear you, two of you said that. I don't know that to be true. Our staff are collecting or researching that. And Mitch, we thank you very much for the call. Can I speak to Mitch's thing? And he's right. The first thing he was right about, it's a larger issue, this home rule petition thing. My position is not that you have to change the structure of government. My position is that every legislator on Beacon Hill should say, if this is not happening in my community, and Community X, Lexington, Wellfleet, or Boston wants Y, I'm voting for it if their local governing body and their chief official, <clears throat> a mayor, wonder, I'm automatically voting the way well, they voted.
2: Here's what I would like to restructure. What? I would like to know how my legislators vote. I don't think that's it's too a great much point. to ask.
1: It's a great <laughs> is point.
2: It, they can't hide behind these voice votes or refuse to tell you how they voted, which is really kind of a scam. And that's what. Well, it's we're not only now. voice
1: votes. It's uh, uh, voice votes. Votes in committee are not even going to be disclosed.
2: You just don't know what they're doing up there, and I don't think it's a good thing. Anyway, we're going to keep talking about this for a few more minutes. The Boston City Council has approved Mayor Wu's plan moving it to Beacon Hill on rent control, and that, of course, is where good and great ideas go to die. 877 301 8970 is our number 877 301 8970.
1: back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're talking about the vote by the city council in Boston yesterday, 11 to 2, I think it was, 11 to 2, to embrace the rent stabilization proposal advanced by the mayor. Mayor Wu, we've talked to her a lot about it. She campaigned on it, as a caller said a couple of minutes ago. The one thing we are checking at the moment, two callers have said the exact same thing, which I believe to be untrue, but I'm not sure. So we're checking that the 10% cap on uh, rent increases, 4% plus inflation to a max could be lowered by whatever board is established by this legislation. I doubt that, uh, but uh, we are checking and we'll try to let you know either before 12 or as soon as we find out the answer.
2: Here's Susan from from Cohasset. The real issue that needs to be resolved is that there is a supply shortage of affordable housing. More housing must be built. Otherwise, rent control is just a Band-Aid that people will cheat on. And she's right, but the problem is you know, we're not building enough uh, well, uh, affordable housing. But
1: we, to be fair to Mayor Wu, and I'm mm-hmm. glad that person wrote, Mayor Wu, is, whenever she's asked about rent control, mm-hmm. she says exactly what that woman yep. says. It is only one piece of a solution, and you should embrace every part of a solution you can, that the supply does need to be increased. That's a huge issue with her and I think most rent control supporters. Connie and JP, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you. I Hi. Hi.
0: I thought being having once run the rent control board for the city of Boston, you did for eleven years. It, yes, I did. Whoa, great. Uh, from uh, 1984 until the end of rent control, so I know a lot about rent control, and I hope I can be helpful. Please, to you and your listeners. Please. But the one thing that really got me to the phone this morning was to say Boston actually had a means-tested system. Uh, from certainly the time I was there in nineteen uh eighty four on because with vacancy decontrol, control um the the rent increase kicked in only if you were low to moderate income by the HUD standards uh elderly, i believe it was sixty five at that time could have been sixty two or disabled or you know any combination mm-hmm. of those, so protections uh for all the which was by the way seventy five percent of all units that were um, uh, under regulation were in fact in the C control standard, so it didn't really so so there was means testing there. Here's
1: but by the way, Connie Connie, if I can be clear when I was speaking just so that uh, I was talking about Cambridge, which is all I knew because I lived there at the time of the vote, Cambridge was not means tested, but go ahead, true. Okay.
0: Yeah, and at North, I believe, was Brookline. I knew both of those. I knew all the directors over uh-huh. the years because I was at it for a long time. Uh, but Boston's was, and was, the lot that's being proposed right now is specifically for Boston. And um, But here's what we learned with that. It was good that low-moderate income folks, elderly, disabled were um, protected. They then became the targets. And so there were a number of... Uh, legal cases that we brought because people then had a harder time sometimes renting so I leave it to everybody to evaluate both the pros and cons on means testing but sometimes you've now created a class of tenants that um, people are now avoiding renting to and they of course need the units even when they have the money to, to rent at that at that moment it's really about the increase by the way with vacancy to control, you entered at a market rate. The rent was not
1: controlled going into the rental. By the way, can we, we just say, for those who don't know the term, it means exactly what it says. When you vacate a rent-controlled apartment, uh, it becomes decontrolled, thus the, the term.
2: I, let me ask you a question, yeah. because I, I'm not an expert on this, and you are. But my, my concern – you raise a great point about uh, people not wanting to rent to pe- lower-income people – But but in Brookline, um, where I do live and did live then with rent control, there was a whole stretch of Beacon Street that was um, rent control, and and it was a lot of people that needed rent control. But there were a lot of other people that were really loaded, and that's a problem, right? I mean, what do you do about that? Well,
0: uh, I think the thing is that – so the type of rent control that Brookline had – was regulating the rents and not uh, regulating the units and Mm -hmm. the buildings, not the human beings. The minute you go to the controlled system, which is what's basically being proposed here, everybody's coming in at a market rate. But remember, the rent control that you experienced, it didn't matter who rented the unit. The rent was set by the town. Right. So it's a very different regulatory scheme when you're regulating people versus you're regulating property.
1: Hey, Connie, we're really glad you called. And thank you for adding what you did to the well, conversation. Me, before you leave, oh. Connie, what do you think we should be
2: doing?
0: You know, Re- I, I think that uh, Mayor Wu really uh, started out with a good, understandable plan here that is uh, reasonable and, um, you know, should give, you know, especially... As, uh, you have both mentioned, she's talking about a 15 year moratorium on this. Yep. And, this it happen 15 years. By the way, that was also true in Boston. Nothing prior that was built prior to 1968 was, was regulated in the Boston system ever. So we also had that, what was called new construction. And once there's a board in place and regulations happen, uh, my guess is that there'll be exemptions even further than the, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Of the owner occupied threes, et cetera. So there's always in a rent control, you always have to have a um, sort of not an escape hatch, but you have to have something that releases the unanticipated situation that is unfair to the property owner. Correct. Otherwise, the law cannot stand.
1: Connie, thanks. we're thrilled that you right. called in. Thanks so yeah, much. Thank thanks you very, for your years thank you
2: very much. running the rent control board, too. We really well, appreciate Well, that's it. What, where people get nervous about these rent control boards because, like I said, that's when the rent control was there before. That's where I had to go to plead for my exemption. And I was like, as I said, the czarina in the den of the Bolsheviks. Yeah, but the,
1: de- the the devil's in the details. I mean, again, we're still checking on this, friends, but if, if the callers are right— And the rent board has the ability to lower the threshold below Mm -hmm. 10%. That's a concern. And the legislature could fix that, by the way. But we don't know it to be true. It also may be just a talking point that's sent out by the opponents. We're going to try to find out before we are done here. Alan and Whalen, what's up? Hi there. Hey.
8: So I always hear about one side of the ledger, which is the rent control, which is we're putting it on the shoulders of the owners of the properties to control the rent. But I think that all the taxpayers should contribute. And how you do that is that you go to the landlords and say, we're going to, to give you a tax break yep. along with this rent control. So we all contribute to it. And the reason is, if we make it too hard for the landlords, we may not have landlords. They may get out of it and right. sell their properties. Right. And then if you have less properties, that makes it harder for everybody to get it, and rents will go up anyway. You have to consider both sides of the ledger. I never hear that discussion.
1: Well, you know, can I say, Alan, in my recollection, and I – Could be wrong. Is that a couple of the moderates on the Boston City Council who voted in favor of this proposal yesterday actually were discussing exactly what you were talking about earlier on. And I am guessing that that's something the legislature, assuming they want to consider this on the merits, could attach if they chose. It's a fine point. And thanks for making it, Ellen. We appreciate
2: it. You know, I'll never forget when I was working for Boston Magazine doing a story about a little street uh, uh, you know, right where, you know, where the Copley Square Mall is. Sure. Um, you know, Colony Hotel. There's a little street in there that had a big building, old building. Must have been, I don't know, 100 apartments oh. in there and they were all rental apartments. And people have lived there for 30 and 40 and 50 years. And I did some story about this woman. She was like 85, this perfect little woman with little pearls around her neck and a little rouge on her cheeks and stuff like that. And um, In the the previous uh, rent control mess back then, what happened is they all got thrown out and uh, the developer bought the entire place, became condos, and all those people lost their homes. It was just horrible. I mean, and that's what you're afraid of, too, that um, if you do squeeze landlords uh, too hard, that they'll just say, screw it. Yeah, but keep in mind,
1: there were three communities that had rent control for a lot of years and all of them, I assume, considered the pros and cons in 94 and overwhelmingly decided we want to retain it. So at least the vast majority of the citizenry, voting citizens in Cambridge, uh, Brookline, and Boston in, in 1994 weighed the pros and cons <laughs> and said, uh, I'm voting, uh, keep it in place.
2: But that's not a bad idea, I don't think, particularly for small landlords at the college. So that everybody
1: shares the burden. Yeah. Yeah. I told you, I think I, I'm pretty sure a couple of the moderate members of the council uh, supported that position. But it passed 11 to 2. And essentially, the progressives who wanted a more radical. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Rent control proposal decided to settle for this. And the moderates who weren't crazy about the whole thing and maybe wanted that tax break for uh, uh, small landlords, at least who had rent controlled units, uh, uh, uh Decided not to advance that so they could advance a proposal to Beacon Hill.
2: I'm also getting a lot of texts from people who are landlords. Um, You know, uh, this one is, uh, um, said, um, Brian from Holden. Oh, that's the wrong one. JP and Dorchester have 52 rental apartments, never raise rent more than 5%, usually only after improvement. As a maid of the house, and another small landlord is talking about the constant need for updates of the house, spending tens of thousands of dollars to update things for the house and update things in the apartments, and how uh, this person chooses their tenants very carefully and has kept the rents low because they are grateful for the good tenants that they have. So well, there good are. Good for them, that's great. Th- yeah, there are two sides to the story, I think, that makes some small landlords nervous.
1: Well, also by the way, a lot of landlords decide for strategic reasons, not just compassion, to keep rent increases relatively low because you want a stable – you want somebody who's a decent tenant, who's not driving you nuts, to stay there. And if it means you get a few extra dollars, most people I know who are landlords, very small landlords in Cambridge. That's their guiding notion. Benjamin in Salem, thank you for calling. Hi.
8: Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, great. Um, yeah, so I- – the point I wanted to bring up is that I I, I sit on the board of the local housing authority here Mm -hmm. and it takes, and currently it takes somebody, um, you know, at least six to eight weeks to find uh, a rental property, even if they have a section eight voucher, Mm -hmm. it might take longer. Um, And one of the problems that we're seeing, which I don't see being addressed, like I'm, I, I have mixed feelings about rent control, but my biggest concern with it is that, it would speed up the rate of condoization yeah. of
1: existing structures. Yeah, Marjorie mentioned that, and too. And then yeah. that
8: then decreases the overall rent available units for rental properties in the area. And when that happens, you know, we, we're not doing much to build more public housing units anymore. So the best thing that we can do is issue, um, you know, is issue Section 8 vouchers. But if there's less rental properties because they've gone condos, yeah. then that makes it so much harder for people to live here. And I just don't see that being... Talk much and, and well, Benjamin, we, you can I interrupt you for
1: a, a second? We did discuss that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. I forgot about it. There is a provision in Wu's proposal that uh, doesn't prevent condo conversion but provides some cushioning and I think either Marjorie or I asked her about why she didn't go farther with that. And again, the legislature could amend it if they, they chose. Do you quickly, we only have a minute, do you quickly have a suggestion as to how that uh, the condo conversion issue could be addressed other than outright prevention?
9: Mm-hmm. I,
8: I I, the only one that I can say is, is we have to encourage more low, uh, small-scale development of mm-hmm. housing properties in the area. I I, um, I mean, I'm smarter people than me have been looking at this for, for yeah. ages, and there's just not good solutions there
1: except for we need more available units. Of course. Benjamin, we appreciate your call, and thanks uh, so much for bringing your perspective to this discussion.
2: <clears throat> well, I think we can predict one thing, Jim. What's that? It's going to be a huge fight about this. <laughs> well, you know, we, we
1: forgot to play the sound we have. We'll maybe play it in a few minutes. Uh, uh, Healy's on board. And right. we asked her about it as recently, Governor Healy, a week or so ago. And the question is, is she just going to say, if it gets to my desk, I'll sign it? Uh, a local option. And again, she wanted to see the details. But a local option, the concept she supported. Or is she going to join forces with Mayor Wu and the counselors and actually lobby it? On Beacon Hill. We will ask uh, the governor that next time she joins us.
2: Okay, we are going to move on after the noon news. We're going to talk with the Boston Globe's Shirley Young about this issue, as Jim just said, uh, plus uh, Governor Healy's economic agenda, plus the state auditor investigating allegations of racism at the Heinz Convention Center Auditorium. All that is next. Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
1: I'm Jim Brady, head on Boston Public Radio. Governor Healy's budget includes a proposal to make community college free. And the Supreme Court considers a proposal to make college even more expensive by killing Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. We'll speak with former Education Secretary Paul Revel about those things and college binge drinkers and the
2: board. I'm Marjorie Egan. The Celebrity Series of Boston Jazz Festival is on again. Singer Nina Freelon and violinist Chelsea Green will play as a tune or two in our studios in Brighton ahead of their concert tomorrow. We'll close the show with a question to listeners. Is it time to forget about decluttering queen Marie Kondo and re-embrace the mess? Especially if, like Kondo, you've now got a mess machine kid or two or teens with mushrooms growing in their bedrooms. That's all ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GPH. Hi, I am Marjorie Yeegan. Welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. We want to remind everybody that we are going to be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow from 11 to 2, putting on our show. Mm. Hi, Jim.
1: Hi, Marjorie. How are you? Fine, thank you. We're joined now on Zoom by Boston Globe Business columnist Shirley Leung. She joins us weekly. Hello, Shirley.
2: Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hi. Hey, Shirley Young. So uh, we just talked to our listeners for a half an hour about um, Mayor Wu's proposal for rent control, which has been approved by the City Council Rent rent Stabilization, she calls it. And to say the passions were intense on either side is an understatement. Tons of text messages about this. Um, What's your takeaway? What do you you think is going to happen with this whole uh, proposal for rent stabilization in Boston?
10: Well, it's an early victory for Mayor Wu. I mean, she got it past the city council, but the real battle will be on Beacon Hill. I, um, and, uh, you know, Beacon Hill's notoriously does not, they they, they don't you know they don't get a lot done to begin with and and especially with an incredibly (laughs) controversial topic (laughs) like this they're going to find a way to to like make this go away and not think about it right um i mean if you think about the real estate lobby uh you know uh they are already out in force they've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to campaign and kill rent control on beacon hill um I mean, I, per, I think it's a, a fairly modest proposal it that um, Mayor Wu put forth. I actually thought it would get killed at the city council because it was too modest. Um, and so but but it's it's gone to the next round. And um and so let's let's I I'm my sense is I think Beacon Hill will try to stall <laughs> and try not to uh, deal with it this session. Uh, but there is a pressure point. Um, you're starting to see polling on yeah. the top. Right. Three to
1: one, 68 to 22 in the poll that was in the know, Globe the other day.
10: You know, you know uh, Shirley, lots
2: of people have written stories nationally about one of the big problems about big cities like Boston, New York, et cetera, is that we make it so hard to, to, to develop anything. The regulations are ridiculous. I mean, I'm wondering if there might be a way to kind of sweeten the pot for the development side, for the real estate side, where uh, the, it wouldn't be so uh, –
10: they might be more willing to make a compromise. You know, I, I think that she's uh, Mayor Wu's tried to do that with by exempting you know new construction, I, I think for, for the 15
1: first, years, yeah.
10: And so, but 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 ultimately, I mean, this rent control policy covers about half of the would apply to about half the 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 units, um, the rentals in in Boston, but ultimately, if you really want to lower lower rents. I mean, you got to build, you got to increase supply. You got to find a way. And ultimately, I mean, you're right, Marjorie, one way is is to create more incentives. Um, But where we've seen the long jam is is the neighborhood, right? The the neighborhood by neighborhood. uh, you know whether it's in the city of boston or out in the suburbs n- no one seems to welcome new housing um you know one of my favorite stories uh this year so far is uh by my colleague andrew brinker about the the attempt to build um uh apartments right on on uh, vacant parking parking spaces right on the south shore mall I oh mean, that's the- right <laughs> That seems a, that seems like a great location to put more housing right It's right off at of ninety three uh you know there seems to be a lot of land, but they're running to all kinds of problems uh trying to get um uh, more ho- housing built on the parking lots of the south Shore mall. i think they i think But one of the last stories Andrew wrote about was that I think they're trying to get Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll involved to kind of broker some kind of deal.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, I I mentioned uh, Governor Healy uh, saying she supported local option. I just want to play the sound briefly before we leave this topic for today. In January, she's with us and we ask her about whether she supports the concept of local option, rent stabilization, rent control. Here, Here it is.
2: From the beginning my view has been first of all we've got a housing crisis people can't
10: afford rent they can't afford uh, afford to buy new homes And, and this gets to whether or not people are going to be able to come here stay here i i support the efforts of local communities to make decisions for themselves about what is going to work within their community and so
2: with every proposal, of course, the devil's always in the details. And
1: So you do, you do support, again, the devil is in the details, but the concept is one that obviously you're comfortable with and support.
2: The concept is, uh, yes.
1: Okay, so uh, the reason I play that is if you're worried about what happens, as Shirley said correctly, in the House and the Senate, the mayor of Boston supports it, the council supports it, the concept is supported by the governor, uh, call the governor's office and tell her you want her not just to sign it, if it gets to her desk, but that you want her to lobby the legislature to get it to her desk. So that's it. We'll revisit this when we talked about the governor and the uh, and the uh, mayor. We're talking to Shirley Young from the Boston
2: Globe. Well, Shirley, it seems like everybody's going to be investigating the Heinz Convention Center Authority pretty soon after employees there alleged that there uh, had been racism. Not Heinz,
1: the Convention Convention Center, Center Authority. Authority. Yeah. I'm sorry, mm-hmm.
2: Convention Center Authority, um, and um, in involving. Uh, hirings uh postings all this kind of stuff we got uh the investigation done by the convention center itself the attorney general is involved now we've got state auditor diana desaglio launching her audit of the mass convention center authority so um what do you make of this
10: well i was gonna say marjorie is partially right so the mass convention center authority oversees the lines the 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 south boston convention center so um but anyways uh This is this is these are incredible allegations, um, and I'm glad that all the various authorities are uh, investigating it. Um, uh, This comes at a time when. you know the the state has the the state and the convention center authority under you know previous executive director Jim Rooney, um, and and a board. They've been very mindful and uh, about um, you know looking at diversity diversity um, in in the su- supplier network. Uh, they've been looking at. Um, How can we attract more um, minority convention, minority groups um, and and convention goers of color to come to Boston? So there's been a lot of work put into this. Um, And when I think about those, what's going on, um, I'm thinking about the NAACP convention. The Nationals convention is coming in July. This this this, This was a time for us to. to to show off Boston how much we have changed. And so um, I'm working on a piece right now reminding, um, you know, everyone that the governor actually has a lot of power here. She controls nine of the 13 board seats of the Convention Center Authority. So um, you know, she she should let these investigations play out, but they shouldn't take forever. You know, sometimes these investigations take forever. Um, but this, this you know, NAACP convention is, is coming to town very soon. Um, I'm hoping that um, she can put some pressure to make sure that these are are done properly, but also don't drag on.
1: You know, uh, I, I don't understand about this, and you understand that world so much better than I. Just one paragraph from the The Globe story, a Globe review found no black employees among the 25 highest paid employees of the convention authority. We're in a majority minority city. One of the few independent authorities in state government does not have a diversity officer, e- even charged with creating opportunities. Authority officials—this is the one that kills me—say they're now in the process of hiring their first diversity officer. Of course, they are because they're being accused of discriminating against people and of discriminating against black people in particular. How does and this- they're
2: forced to sign these non-disclosure agreements too? In some cases, when they when they leave, right? Which is kind of I don't know—is that weird?
10: well i don't i think the the non disclosure is is probably a somewhat of a standard practice but but in addition to the lack of diversity uh uh you know i guess the lack of that there that that uh there are no um highly paid um people of color uh, you know among the top 25 is that um the board itself. Is not asking diverse.
1: questions. It's How do I choose which story leads to pursue? Investigated
10: Oh, <laughs> Philip Martin
1: decided to join the show Hi, from Philip. some. Okay, as you were saying, a little technical snap over there. I
10: was saying that the board itself. Um, you know, uh, the, the reason why I bring up the board is because uh, I don't. You guys don't remember, but one of the very first things that Governor Baker did when he became governor uh, was that he remade the board. He in in you know overnight seven new board members mm-hmm. and including a new board chair. And, but the previous board bef- was very diverse. Um, there were four people of color um, on that board. Uh, Michelle um, shell, a black woman was the chair of the board. Um, many of them were Deval Patrick appointees uh, when Baker remade the board um, right now. Um, there's only one black board member on the board. Really? Um, I didn't know that. And, and so, Um, uh, So I think there's an opportunity for Healy to take a look at the board, to make sure that the board is diverse as these investigations um, play out.
1: You know, my favorite part of the story uh, in the Globe reporting is uh, a great reporter, obviously, I think we say pretty regularly. Uh, You mentioned the nondisclosure agreement margin. Natasha Hall was required to sign a nondisclosure agreement, employees said. But they learned how much the confidential settlement was anyway. (laughs) One point two million because someone left a copy <laughs> on an office printer.
10: That was a great detail that in her story. Wasn't so that a
2: great totally detail? Totally great. And, okay. Do you think somebody did that on purpose? What do you think? I
1: wonder. I <laughs> wonder if that is the case. Yeah.
2: Maybe. Wow. 1.2 million. Okay. Um, so Shirley Young, uh, let, let us- it, By
1: the way, the, the other thing, reason that's relevant- is Diana DeSoglio built her whole career um, on being anti- non-disclosure, being yes. anti-non-disclosure agreements around issues like sexual harassment and that sort of thing when well, she was a on. House member and a senator.
2: Um, when when you say there's standard operating procedure, um, I, why? I don't understand that, Shirley.
10: Well, no, I'm just saying that NDA, usually you get, something happens, nobody, you know, they want to kind of sweep it under the rug, so we'll give you money and we'll pay you to go away. I mean, that's... We don't admit guilt, of
1: course, and that sort of thing, right? So to
10: get your money, you
2: got to sign on the dotted line.
10: Yes. yes, yeah, Okay. Unless you let it's left on the copy machine.
1: <laughs> and by the way, there are people like DiSaglio again who pretty right. much ran on this that said they should be outlawed in many
10: it, right, contexts
1: exactly. so that well, employees remember, are not in that position.
2: One of the reasons it took decades to find out about the priests, right, the Catholic Church, was they were all right. these people were all getting not signing non disclosure agreements, which you can understand maybe then in that context they didn't want to be had their stories of sexual abuse when they were children on the front page of the paper, but it did mean that. Uh, this conduct continued and uh, the public was unaware. Okay, uh, Shirley Young, um, what do we think about uh, um, what Healy has done on fixing the
10: economy or
2: keeping it chugging along <laughs> at a good pace. Well,
10: we, we we yeah, we talked a little bit about this last week uh but the reason why we're talking about again is cuz my colleague um uh Larry, Larry Allen. Allen. is launching a new uh business newsletter. A shameless plug here. It's fine. Uh it's called Trendlines and it it's coming out Monday and Fridays and and his first piece was about um you know, talking to the business community and uh, what they think about um Healy's first budget, and we talked a little bit about this last week is it you know it's a, it, um i mean she is, is 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 um really taking page from charlie P- baker uh, she uh, she's um you know a true moderate when it comes to the economy, and um i I know the business community is very you know largely pleased with um the budget, um including. Uh, estate tax reform um, and some other tax cuts. Uh, though in Larry's um, new, inaugural newsletter, I think some people in the business thought that she could have gone a bit further. Um, even though she's proposing um, estate tax uh, reform and and um, lowering some of these capital gains, short term capital gains tax, um, it really just puts us in line with everybody else. It doesn't make us uh, more competitive on that front or give us an advantage.
2: You know, Shirley Young, you wrote a great column about the <laughs> interviewing the uh, former... Uh, um uh, state labor secretary. We all remember back during the pandemic, you know, things closed. People were in desperate shape. They had no money. The state starts giving out all this money so people could buy food, etc. And then the rules changed. And then the state was was told they had to get back, I think it was, as you put in your column, $4 billion, clawed back from the people who probably didn't have it anymore because they'd already spent the money and the food and the, and the bills and stuff like that. And your quote from her that she said, it was like the Hunger Games out there with every state trying to like fend for itself, elaborate on this. It was a great column.
10: Right. So, um, and uh, we were talking about this about yes, exactly a year ago, we were talking about, um, because what was happening was that uh, people who applied for unemployment benefits during the pandemic starting to get notices from the state, you owe us money, <laughs> and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, uh, because um, the federal government, which you know the state just helps dispense these benefits, the federal government changed the rules on who qualified and so uh so a lot of people were really worried they really did not have money to give back and so um and and you you I was gonna say you and Jim did a great job of grilling the governor <laughs> a year ago about are you really clawing back the money and and remember he he took umbridge with that he that's like, right he didn't like
2: Not a clawback, not a clawback.
10: (laughs) Not a clawback. I mean, technically they had not, they, they wanted their money back, but I guess in his mind, clawback was that we would take your tax refund. We would intercept your paychecks or intercept your tax refund. But- um, anyways, Rosalyn Acosta, the, the the labor secretary at the time, she is now at um, as a new you know she left the administration. She's a new job. I don't think she's ever really talked about um, what happened. And so uh, now she's at uh, a consulting firm, EY. But um, she it was an opportunity to, to figure to, to kind of catch up, like where wh- what happened to all that money. And it turns by the way, this out, affected
1: hundreds of thousands of people. Oh this yeah, is no right, hundreds small of thousands, deal. Of right? Okay.
10: And um and 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 actually they did so. So, so what happened was after you know after Larry and me writing the stories about you grilling the governor. Um, The the state, the governor put out um, this basically, um, it's not really somewhat of an amnesty, but basically what they call a one click waiver. They made it very easy for you to get through to appeal, to apply for a waiver. And when all and and so far, so there was about four billion dollars in overpayments. And um, through this kind of very um, kind of easier uh, process, um, the state was able to process four hundred and eighteen thousand claims um and about three over 3 billion dollars um in overpayments so Um, but as I've learned, since learned, there are still, um, people out there who are still going through this process. Um, and this, the one click waiver that, that period, these were emergency regulations that they they expired in October. So I think some of the advocates are trying to get those, um, regulations back in place because it it was night and day. It, It made it, you know, maybe it would take weeks, uh, to, to process your waiver and your appeal, um. You know, it would take seconds apparently uh, under uh, those emergency regulations. Um, but uh, um, so, one of the things though, I I, I asked a Costa. I said, um, has the state started to um, intercept tax refunds yet? And she said, when I left, they have not. And I did confirm with the state they have not started um, to intercept tax refunds. But I think some of the lawyers working on this issue are are, are fear that that's coming. You know. You know, but three years after the pandemic
1: two things that uh, oh, uh just a comment on what you said their word on the street marjorie knows this too it was immediately after that grilling that we did of charlie <laughs> baker that he decided he would not seek a third term i don't know if you're aware <laughs> of that i can't either confirm or whatever. uh but on a serious note uh, i don't know if it was you or larry wrote uh, it for people first of all it's through no fault of their own that they got yeah, that money. the money one want this thing If either your story, Shirley, or Larry's stories, the terror that people felt after they got these benefits that they thought they were getting, they were, they were entitled to,
11: were and work. after
1: they used it for necessities in 99.9% of the cases, hanging over their head, the thought that they'd have to pay back, as you say, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars. It's not just the economic impact, fiscal economic impact that's huge. The psychic impact on people who were struggling to begin with during the pandemic was just – it was a harsh show. So. Uh, it, it-
10: it was, yeah, and they spent and and we, uh, you know, Larry originally broke the story, and then we paired up together to yeah. to, to talk to uh, people who were affected, and it was so stressful, um, and and you know they they felt like listen. Um, you that the state the state approved the money, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an act of fraud. They they said they were exactly okay. Right. They used to, yeah. you know, pay their rent, put food on their table. Um and so what 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 we're finding now is some of the the, the lingering cases is that you know, people apply for uh, unemployment back in I don't know twenty 2020, twenty 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 one um, now it's twenty twenty three they they've gone back they haven't checked their unemployment accounts they they've been back to work they think that you know everything is normal and suddenly some of them they went to just happen to check their um, unemployment benefit account and they're like, Oh no, what? I I owe tens of thousands of dollars. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, so some of the, so anyway, so, so we're, I'm going to revisit the issue because for some people it's it's still very much um, a problem. Yeah, I I was just going to say there were lots of people
2: um, that, that got away with unemployment fraud too, claiming, uh, other people's names for unemployment and that right. sort of thing, which which really, I, I don't know how they resolved those issues or how they ever got the money back or if they ever arrested anybody. But wasn't that rampant during the pandemic too? Yeah,
10: and with also with the PPP, the PPO, yeah.
2: yeah, right.
10: But that's going through the courts. I mean, those are c- criminal cases going through. But but that's not these people. These, these no, are these not- are upstanding people right Who we lost don't know if jobs. they're
1: upstanding we just know they were okay. entitled they some thought they're entitled to the money and <laughs> some of
2: them are upstanding <laughs> some of them are between shady and upstanding we're not really sure uh, uh
1: uh yeah i'm glad you did a follow-up on that can i ask one last question about this because i wasn't clear when you said when you said the current administration i don't even know what's the name of the new labor lauren somebody or- lauren jones lauren, lauren jones yes. my apology to the secretary i just forgot her last name uh uh they you learned that they're they're not doing any of these uh, uh, holding back your tax refunds or anything oh no go ahead oh, what I
10: should, I should say they have not started well that's why
1: i wanted to ask you is it their intention to do it
10: well, that, it, it, what, what I was told is they have not, it is, it, you know, they have not started intercepting tax refunds. Um, so if you owe, so for example, let's say you owe $10,000, they're going to dock your tax refund, uh-huh. but they haven't, that process is currently under review, whether they would begin that process of intercepting um, tax refunds.
1: Okay. Glad you followed mm. up on it, Shirley. It's great to see you.
2: Thank you very much. She's always Shirley. For me. You Pleasure. know everything over there. She's a the business. columnist. You're talking to me, or you're talking to Shirley. I'm talking to Shirley. Oh, actually. Shirley, I'm sorry. She knows okay. everything. Okay, she Shirley Young is a business does. columnist for the Boston Globe and a weekly BPR contributor. Thank you very much, Shirley. After a quick break, it's Women's History Month. And so in honor of that, we're going to revisit a 2014 conversation we had with former President Jimmy Carter, who is now in hospice care, as you probably know. This is a book he wrote about violence against women, not just in the United States, but all around the world, just a few years back. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. That conversation with Jimmy Carter is up next.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're live at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. As you know, Jimmy Carter is the oldest living American president at 98. He recently moved into hospice care, opting to spend his remaining time at home with his family. Marjorie and I were lucky enough to speak to President Carter from when we were at GBH back in 2014. He was only 90 years old at the time about a book he wrote. It's called A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. Gender equality is one of the many important causes President Carter has championed in and out of office, even when it was not terribly popular. His White House supported the Equal Rights Amendment and his administration was noted for its inclusion of women. For President Carter, equality is not simply about politics, but about theology. Since it's Women's History Month, we thought we'd re-listen to our 2014 conversation with the 39th president of the United States. President Carter, pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks so
11: much. Thank you, Jim, and Marjorie, too, I guess.
2: Yes, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be talking with you, President Carter. So as people know, you've not only won the Nobel Peace Prize, but you've written more than two dozen best-selling books. Why did you decide to focus on the problem of women and and girls being discriminated against around the world? Why did you choose that subject?
11: Well, because we decided after four years of study that it's the most important and unaddressed and serious affliction of human rights on Earth. There's no doubt about it. The abuse of women and girls in, in the United States and other nations is almost beyond comprehension. And uh, we, we thought, I thought it was very important to let not only uh, the, the public officials know about these abuses that are not addressed are not corrected, but also to let the private citizens of our country know what's going on here in America and in other countries.
1: You know, President Carter, after having read your book this weekend, I was watching 60 Minutes last night. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, the cardinal from Boston was very close to the Pope, Sean O'Malley, yes, was being I interviewed by Nora O'Donnell. And the line that made me think of you after having read the book is, uh, Cardinal Sean says not everyone needs to be ordained to have an important role in the life of the church. Women run Catholic charities, Catholic schools, development office, the archdiocese. It goes on to say priests can't have children. <laughs> uh, you think that a lot of the discrimination and subjugation of women trickles down from bias at the top in uh, uh, religions in the world, correct?
11: It does, yes.
1: And explain it's it no to doubt us again. About it.
11: Well, I wrote the Pope a letter after I published my book, and I sent him a copy of it, by the way, and he sent me a very nice letter saying that his, his opinion was that uh, women's uh, involvement uh, in the leadership roles of the church should be in, enhanced or increased. Uh, he didn't say how, of course, uh, and I think that uh, what uh, Archbishop or Cardinal O'Malley said last night is true. I think, I think that the Pope uh, is inclined to improve the women's status in the church. But still, the Southern Baptist Convention, from which I withdrew about 12, 15 years ago in protest because they ordained that women couldn't be pastors and deacons and couldn't be chaplains in the military, uh, was directly contrary to what I believed back in those ancient times. So I think that, that this is a problem in all religions. Uh, we work very closely with the uh, Grand Imam of the uh, major university in Cairo, Egypt, who is the leader of his Sunni Muslims, and he agrees with us, and he has issued uh, his own edicts that there's no place in the uh, Islamic world to uh, derogate women or treat them as inferior to men. So I think that this is an unfortunate interpretation that has been handed down through the centuries, and now it looks on, you know, it's it's assumed almost a matter of of theological
1: Authentication. But, uh, President Carr, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you believe that the, the impact, it's not just within the religion that there is discrimination, right. that, that that sort of discrimination essentially gives tacit permission for men to abuse wives and children and that sort of thing, correct?
11: That's, that's exactly right. And, and, and even employers who are, um, who are dealing with equity among their pay scale, for instance, uh, if they want to pay a woman a little bit less, if they are if they are religious or not, they can use a belief that women are inferior in eyes of God to treat them as inferior people in the marketplace or in employment pools. And, of course, in some countries in the world, there's a big article in the New York Times this morning about the genital mutilation of women. In Egypt, for instance, 91% of all the women over 17 years of age Uh, have been genitally mutilated, with a misinterpretation of of the uh, Koran and also the Bible, uh, neither one of which calls for that to be done. So it's a very serious problem, and uh, a lot of times uh, we don't prosecute men who perpetrate uh, rape or other crimes against women, and, and that applies in the universities of America and also in the military of of the United States as well as in other countries.
2: You know, we want to get to both the military of the United States and the universities in just one second, President Carter. But I'm curious, as you well know better than I do, that some religions, Reform Judaism, for example, and uh, some Protestant denominations, Episcopalians, and there are many others, have ordained uh, rabbis in the case of Jews and, and ministers in the case of yes. the uh, Not Orthodox Jews, by the way. Not Orthodox, just Reform. Yeah. is what I said, Reformed, sorry. Ju- yes, Reformed I Judaism. So the question is, um, are these people just a- ahead of their time or, and, and other people going to follow, or do you think that this is going to be decades and decades before we see changes in some of these other religions?
11: I think there's a, there's a trend to do it. Uh, for instance, I belong to a little church in Plains. In fact, I teach Bible lessons every Sunday, including yesterday. Oh uh, well, well, we've had a, a, a woman, woman pastor, and where my wife, Rosen, has been a deacon in the church, and and where my sister in law is, is has has been the chairman of the, of the board of deacons. But anyway, uh, and and we noticed that that in the uh, in in some of the major churches, in the Methodist Church, and also in the Episcopalian Church, and others, they are, are now moving toward ordaining women as bishops in the church as well as pastors in the church. So I think there's a trend in the right direction, but still, uh, it's slow. It's very slow coming.
1: You know, you mentioned the military a minute ago, and obviously, you were a veteran. We had uh, a Congresswoman Nikki Songas with us. I don't know, two three weeks ago, who's yeah. been working with the senator from New York and a Republican whose name I forgot. I think it's Turner from uh, Ohio. On this whole thing, this, the numbers, at least the public numbers, and I assume the private ones are worse, about sexual abuse and sexual harassment in the military are absolutely stunning in this country in 2014. What does one do about that?
11: Well, as you know, some of the women in the in U.S. Senate earlier this year tried to correct it, and, and the Department of Defense reported that there were 26,000 cases of sexual assault mm-hmm. in the military during the previous year. I think it's 2012. And of those 26,000, only 3,000, which is about 1%, were ever brought to any form of justice to prosecute uh, the perpetrator of a rape or, or the sexual abuse. And, and the reason for, the, for that disparity is that uh, commanding officers in the military can, can prevent uh, of any sort of prosecution of a rapist. And, and I know I've served in a, on a submarine. I've served two or three submarines and on two battleships. And I know that the commanding officer of a ship does not want it to be known that under his command there are sexual assaults taking place. And the same thing applies, obviously, in an Army troop or, or a brigade of, of, of Marine, U.S. Marines. They, the, the commanding officers don't want it to be known that under their command these kind of crimes uh, are taking place. So they, they prevent the woman from reporting, first of all, with, uh, with various kinds of persuasion. And then they also can, can actually... Uh, If if a man is found guilty in the military, the the commanding officer can actually give him uh, a pardon unilaterally so he won't be punished. Same thing is happening, by the way, in, in the universities of America.
2: We we had the. the, uh, We're talking with uh, former President Jimmy Carter. Uh, Speaking of the university's President Carter, right today on the front page of the Boston Globe here is another story about uh, sexual assault policy at Harvard University. It's been a big controversy. The New York Times had a big front page and the Week in Review section yesterday talking about the same thing that that we have very uh, few convictions and women are are not reporting rape, et cetera, et cetera, the same old story. So we're in a dilemma right here. some of the finest colleges and universities in America.
11: Well, I've been a professor at Emory University for thirty-three years, and I know it goes on on the Emory campus as well. There again, you know, the president of a of a university, and uh, the deans of a university, are very averse to it being known how many sexual assaults take place on the campuses. And uh, <clears throat> I read the article, <clears throat> excuse me, in the New York Times, and I noticed, and I've also got it in my book, by the way that only about less than 5% of all the sexual assault cases or rapes on college campuses are ever reported by women, whereas in, in outside university life, say in normal life in Boston or Atlanta, about 35% are reported. So that shows how much of a, of a deterrent there is on a college campus for a woman to report that she's been raped. And, and, when, and when it is reported, uh, very seldom nothing is done about it. Except this, they they counsel the rapist, and I, I noticed also in an article that was in the New York Times yesterday that that about uh, that, that men about four percent of the of the uh, men of the college campuses are ever involved in this kind of uh, crime, and the average serial rapist on a college campus has perpetrated six rapes, uh, as reported by the U.S. Department of Justice. So. So the whole thing is just uh, in abeyance right now, and I hope that my book and other articles that that have come out this year now uh, will bring about some correction to this problem.
2: We're talking to President Jimmy Carter. His new book is A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. You know, I was going to wait to the end of the interview to ask you this question, but I can't stand it anymore, President Carter. You are 90 years old. You sound fantastic. I've seen you on television. You look fantastic. So what's going on? Is it clean living down there in Plains, Georgia? Is it a long marriage? I mean, what's the secret?
11: Well, I married the right woman. That's the major thing. And I've been... uh... You know, I've, I've been with her with for sixty-eight and a half years, and so that's one of the reasons I get along so well. But I've been lucky, as a matter of fact, with my health. You know, a lot of people, through no fault of our own, are uh, stricken down in life a lot earlier. But I've just been been fortunate. A lot of people you
1: think your wife was pretty fortunate in her selection are you, too. President
2: are you doing Carter. the elliptical in the morning, or what? You, you know, what are you doing?
11: Well. I get up early. I write a lot. I've been writing on my next book this morning, and uh, that's the way I make a living is on my books. I don't <laughs> serve on corporate boards, and I'm not on the lecture circuit. So, And I get a—I get a salary from my teaching job at, at Emory, uh, which gives me some time to write. So I enjoy the exploration of uh, ideas and also uh, appreciate when I write a book the chance to talk to people like you and, and promulgate, you know, My ideas and try to bring about some changes in the world that I think are important.
1: You know, you also write about infanticide, and it it really hits home with me. Both of my daughters are adopted from China roughly 20 years ago. Uh, And when the adoption of Chinese girls in America started in earnest roughly 20 years ago, virtually everybody would say to me, why are they all girls? And they're all girls because they're the lucky ones, as you know, because there is a huge amount of infanticide in Asia. Is this as prevalent today as it was 20 and 30 years ago?
11: It is. As a matter of fact, in China now, for every 100 girls, there are 118 boys. And in India, there are 114 boys for every 100 girls. And what happens to those other 14 or 18 percent of girls who would be born, they're actually um, murdered or strangled by their own parents. And uh, this happens not only when when the governments, like India and China, put a limit on the number of people in a family, but it also happens in other countries where there's extreme poverty and the parents don't think they can support, say, five or six children. They won't have maybe two boys or one boy grow up to take care of them in their old age. So this means that in the world now there, there are 160 million girls missing from the face of mm-hmm. the earth, and they have either been aborted before they are born or either they've been strangled at birth. There was a movie that came out last year, about a year ago now, called It's a Girl, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a woman from India in the movie who testifies quite proudly, as a matter of fact, that she strangled eight daughters because she and her husband couldn't afford to raise them.
1: You know, President Carter, the current president, Barack Obama, just uh, cut a deal with the president of China on climate change. And in those kinds of meetings, I always wonder what people who've achieved those positions like you had – How do you make the determination when there's an issue like climate change, for example, which obviously is a pretty critical one as well, and at the same time, you're aware, and I'm sure the president is aware, even if he hasn't read your book yet, about what's going on with little girls in that country. How did you make the decision about what was the right time and the right circumstance to raise issues like human rights, which I know have really been your life's work? How'd you make that decision?
11: Well, I emphasize human rights, even when it was very unpopular back in those days, for instance just give you one quick example it had been a policy in our country for for decades even centuries to go to bed with the military dictators in latin america and we would have very uh, lucrative trades with them on getting bauxite or iron ore or pineapples or bananas or whatever and if any uh, revolutionaries wanted to change their government for, to a democracy they were characterized by by the united states leaders as communists and we were even sending troops to defend the, the uh, military dictators. I, I changed that. And uh, when I was, uh, became president, uh, there were military dictatorships, as you may know, in, in Honduras and in Guatemala and, and Nicaragua and, and in Chile and Argentina and Paraguay and Uruguay and Peru and Brazil. All of those were military dictators. But after the human rights policy was implemented, and I insisted on it uh, within 10 years, Every one of those countries uh, had become a democracy just because the people were given a chance to express their views peacefully, and they uh, they prevailed. So I think that human rights ought always to be should be in the forefront of the considerations that we maintain. But obviously, that can't prevent you trying to deal with global warming. And 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 the search for peace and so
2: forth. We're talking with President Jimmy Carter. His new book is a call to action: women, religion, violence, and power. President Carter, speaking of sending in uh, troops, um, I you know you have written a lot about obviously violence in the world as well, and and we are now in a position where we are uh, sending uh, more troops into Iraq. As you know, Peter Cassig, the young American, uh, was beheaded by ISIS, and yes. people are still reeling from that. But you were president for a long time, President Carter. What do you think? Should we be sending more troops into Iraq as we are right now?
11: Well, I don't want to comment on on that on what we should to be doing now. But I I know that when I was president, I looked on human rights as as a major factor. But also the the right of people to live in peace is one of the most crucial elements of human rights. And so I just relegated going to war as the last possible option that I would exercise in any sort of uh, crisis that involved our country. And while I was in office, we not only kept peace for our own country, but we tried to promote peace for others, like between Egypt and Israel and, and normalized relations with China and doing away with apartheid in Rhodesia and things of that kind. So we, I was lucky to go through my my term in office, we never dropped a bomb, or fired a missile, or you know, or shot a bullet. So, so I, that's, I think in in general, we should have as uh, going to war as the last possible uh, decision to make for a country in a time of crisis. Most of the wars that we've been in since the Second World War, and that's that's been about thirty different wars against different people, have been unnecessary. Some of them. Uh, obviously, have to be, can have to be careful. body is justified.
1: You know, President Carter. One of the last things from me, if I can. You write in your book that that we can't. And I'll, I'll paraphrase. I know you'll correct me if I'm if I'm wrong or overstating it. We can't impose our standards from outside on how women should be treated. That essentially we have to work with local women leaders and let them be the ones who help transform their culture. Is that a fair description of what you wrote?
11: It is when you relate it to genital mutilation, yes, so, because it's the it's the mothers in Egypt, uh, for instance, and in Somalia and, and Djibouti who Djibouti who uh, who uh, mutilate the sexual organs of their little girls. More than ninety percent of the women, and and that's a decision that's not imposed on the women by by their husbands or by the religious leaders. But it's, it's done by women, and that's a, a particular issue uh, where women make the decision. By, by, by having the the Koran and the Bible, by the way, misinterpreted to convince them that their daughter's uh, genitals must be mutilated so they won't be uh, have sexual satisfaction uh, and so forth.
1: So is it, too, is it too broad a leap for me to draw from that example that you wrote about? That the same rule should apply to the United States attempting to impose democracies in parts of the world where local leaders are not fighting for democracies, but because we think it's best for them, we should try to make it happen?
11: If you use the word impose, I would agree with you completely. I I think we can encourage democracy. In fact, the Carter Center does that. uh, And and it was a a policy that I adopted when I left the White House. Uh, We began the the policy... uh, which has now been adopted by others, of monitoring democratic elections in, in troubled countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just finished our 98th election uh, a week or two ago in Tunisia, and we'll do our 99th election this week uh, with the election of a president in Tunisia. Uh, earlier this, this few, last few months, we've been in the, to Madagascar and Mozambique, for instance. So we, we, we help with uh, elections all over the world, but we only go in at the invitation of the country involved. And we have to comply and do comply with their rules and regulations. Sometimes their rules and regulations preclude uh, any of the basic elements of a democracy, like in Egypt. We were going to monitor the next election in Egypt, but I decided that Egypt didn't have the basic principles of democracy uh, available to their people in the upcoming election, so we withdrew in protest. So I think think from the United States, particularly in a non-governmental organization like the Carter Center, you, you can uh, promote the concepts of democracy or explain to the people, not with intrusion, but but in answer to their questions and so forth, uh, the advantages of letting the people choose their own leaders.
2: We're talking with President Jimmy Carter. You talk, uh, uh, as you just mentioned, about encouraging democracies in other countries. In your book, A Call to Action, you suggest other steps, 23 other steps, actually, that could help blaze the road to progress. Anything uh, particular in the last uh, minute or so that you would like to point out to people to remember
11: well, I think the, the best thing to remember is how serious, for instance, we, one that we haven't mentioned is, is, uh, is slavery. We have a, a higher level of income from, from world slavery now than we did even during the time of the 17th and 18th uh, centuries, or even 19th centuries, uh, in the United States and other places with Africans brought to the New World. Uh, the State Department now is required in the United States by the Congress to act, to uh, describe slavery in our country, and they reported in the last year uh data, I think it was 2013, there are 60,000 people living in the United States in slavery and uh, or human bondage, and, and in Atlanta is the number one trading post for people coming into this country from others and sold into slavery. Uh, about 80% of them are girls sold into sexual slavery. Uh, in, in an average month in Atlanta, between two and three hundred girls come into the Atlanta airport and are sold primarily to brothel owners. And uh, and this is is a uh, 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 the reason for it is Atlanta is the busiest airport by far in the world, and most of our a lot of our passengers come in from the southern hemisphere where their skin is brown or black. So a brown or black-skinned girl can be sold into a brothel in Atlanta or surrounding cities by just a thousand for just a thousand dollars. And everybody in America, including in Boston and Atlanta, know uh, when a whorehouse or brothel is in operation. There's no way that you can conceal that from the local police on the block. And and they either are bribed or they are, or they get free sexual slavery uh, favors, or they are told by their chief of police and therefore the mayor and city council, let's don't rock the boat. Mm-hmm. On, on a whorehouse, because uh, that's what the men want, and it doesn't do any real bad, uh, have any bad con- consequences. but the problem are is the problem is that that a lot of those girls who are, sold, are in uh, prostitutes were sold into slavery originally or still are forced saving into slavery against their will. Sweden, by the way, is doing something to correct it, and I've been working with uh, the parliaments in France and in Ireland and in Canada who are contemplating adopting the Swedish model. They don't arrest the prostitutes like we do in America. They arrest the brothel owners, the pimps, and the male customers.
2: That was the voice of former President Jimmy Carter. He spoke with us back in 2014 about his book, A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. Carter is now 98 years old. He recently moved into hospice care. We're thinking of him, his family, his wife. What a wonderful inspiring example he has been uh, the life he's lived post his presidency after a quick break foreign messages education secretary paul revel is here you're listening to boston public radio 89.7 gbh
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie And We are live at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. You're just listening to President Carter. He was 90 years old when we did that interview. He is one incredible man. We're joined now by Paul Revel. Paul is the former Secretary of Education for Massachusetts, professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also uh, leads the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Lynn Sachs, is Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Hello, Paul Revel. Hello, Jim and Marjorie. Sorry I
12: can't be there with you. Oh, that's okay. That's
2: okay. Uh, So, uh, Paul, we've had over the years uh, several stories about uh, racism in in Everett, um, some involving uh, city councilors, some involving charges against the mayor. Now we've had another one where a highly regarded, apparently, superintendent uh, did not get her contract renewed. She is alleging... Uh, racism against uh, the mayor, and uh, so is one of her underlings, um, which is very disruptive, I guess, to these kids. But his Jim has pointed out that there's also an odd lack of reaction from other people around the state, either in politics or in education, um, about what's happening over there in Everett. It's sort of stunning, the, the, the silence, really.
12: Yeah, it's a it's a surprising situation because it really smells. I mean, every aspect of this. I mean, you have a superintendent here who who received consistently positive evaluations from everyone on the school committee since being appointed in 2019, including the mayor, up until the point in which she filed a suit for discrimination and retaliation against him. And as you pointed out, somebody else did. I do. I give credit to the head of the uh, state superintendent's yeah, uh, exactly. organization, Tom Scott, came forward on her behalf, and they never really do that, so that's unusual. He, she had received a prize from that organization, yeah. um, and so uh, you know, and, and particularly coming on the heels of their last long-term superintendent for decades. Uh, having been in jail over sexual assault charges and facing some other ones that he's already admitted guilt to. I mean, it's a really checkered history there. And so for them to, in full public view, and amidst rumors that people on the school committee were getting payoffs in terms of jobs and things of that nature um, in return for their votes, they denied it. But nonetheless... I mean, it just leaves a really bad uh, taste in everybody's mouth. And uh, I can't explain why other uh, leaders haven't been speaking out on her behalf, but uh, she certainly seems like a victim here.
2: Well, the other thing is, who is going to take a job there now? What superintendent that's a good quality person is going to want to come into the city of Everett after reading about this?
12: Short answer, nobody. I mean, why would you? It just... You know, unless you're part of the kind of old boy network, which seems to be getting reinforced there, um, you know, maybe you'll find somebody of that ilk, but you're not going to find, you know, an education leader. You're not going to find somebody who reflects the uh, demographics of the children in the school system. I mean, this was the first. Uh, woman of color, uh, this is the first person of color, first woman, as far as I understand it, ever to lead the Everett public schools, high time that they needed that kind of diversity. When she came into office, nobody in the central office uh, was of color. People were all white in a district that's 80 percent minority. I mean, you know, something's got to give. And this is, this is really a problem. And I'm, I'm sorry there hasn't been more comment from our
1: top state officials on this. So are we. So uh, in Boston, we've had this discussion before. I think this is we come down two against one. I would be the one. Uh, the city council said let's honor the public mandate in an advisory ballot question where overwhelmingly the people of Boston said we want an elected school committee. And if people are not aware, to my knowledge, every single city and town in Massachusetts has an elected school committee except one. That would be Boston. Mayor Wu uh, vetoed it and said respectfully and she'd use the word Uh, She doesn't think it's the right time to be doing this, even though she had talked about the possibility of a hybrid kind of thing, part elected, part appointed. Uh, uh, Paul, I, I believe you believe this is the right choice. If you do, why is it the right choice? One, because we're the outlier in Boston, and two, because the people spoke.
12: Well, I mean, Boston has always um, you know, appealed to state government for exceptionalism by being the state capital city and the largest city. So I'm not, you know, in and in mayoral control of education is something that, uh, you know, nationally only a few of the larger cities uh, have done it. So that that's not surprising. I do think it's the right thing really for two sort of uh, significant reasons right now. Number one, because we have a new mayor and because we have a superintendent in Mary Skipper, who's inspiring a lot of confidence about her capacity to bring about the changes. I think that uh, at least putting a pause on it at this moment and giving this new administration a chance to uh, use the powers that they have and the coherency that you get for having the mayor and the superintendent on the same page, uh, I think would be a wise idea. In any event, even if you were in favor of this measure in the long term, I'm not in favor of it. I'm old enough to uh, to, to know the history of the Boston School Committee. It was a disaster prior to this um, uh, change being made toward mayoral control and mayoral appointment. The committee now is far more demographically representative of the population in the Boston public schools than it ever was. Uh, We don't have the kind of divisiveness. We had a 13-member committee back uh, when this happened. You had some elected at large, four, I think. You had nine elected by district, so therefore their concerns were about their district rather than about the city as a whole. You have blatant racism and broad dysfunction, rapid turnover in superintendents. There was
1: a lot of racism on the appointed committee in the last 18 months, by the way, those comments that were picked up by the chair and others, no?
12: Fair, fair point, fair point. But, I mean, it was just the idea that this is a, kind of a silver bullet remedy. It's just sort of, um, I think, careening from one pillar to another and the pendulum swinging backwards. So I don't think it's the answer to what's going on in the Boston public schools. I think we need you know, uh, strong management. I think we need to focus on student achievement. We need to attend to populations that uh, like English language learners and special needs students who've been underserved. We need to do something about our high schools. There's a whole agenda of less glamorous, less sort of um, topical subjects than the authority of who runs the school system to be attending to. And thank God we have a superintendent who's focused on that now.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, early in my career, I covered a lot of school committee meetings, and I, I was usually horrified by the corruption and the. I mean, a lot of the school committees spent a lot of time giving people jobs, and, and that's not always a great um, uh, thing to be doing. Their focus was on mass and not on the, the schools. And I, what were the platforms? Be in Boston, Jim. I'm running for the MCAS. I'm running against the MCAS. I'm running for neighborhood schools. I'm running against. What are the platforms schools, in the
1: 350 them. cities and towns? That have elected school committees now.
2: Well, I'm not out there. But I don't. I'm not. Well, you live investigating. in one
1: community where they have them, and I live in one community. Yeah. Where we elect well, people. in Brookline
2: we have a town meeting thing, so you can't even vote on some of these things unless you're a town meeting member. But I, I just think it's they're ripe for trouble. Um, I, I the other don't
12: know. concern, the other concern that I have is just. This, you know, this will become, you know, the hottest topic in in education in Boston and will suck up all the oxygen that needs to be more focused on, you know, on strategy, on what we're doing to solve persistent problems that are, you know, having the most profound negative effect on students in the Boston public schools who aren't being well served because we'll talk about this uh, ad infinitum. Uh, because it's the kind of thing that's easy for everybody to talk about. It's about authority and who has control and so on and so forth. But I don't think it's the most important thing for us to be focused on. Paul,
1: one last quick thing about this. If part of the goal is to know where the buck stops, uh, at least I think that's part of the reason why I would support, which I don't. But if I were to support an appointed school committee, I would say the good news is you may not know who the school committee member you voted for is, but the good news is you know who the mayor is. If that's the case and the buck stops with the mayor in Boston because it's an appointed committee, why do we even have a committee? Why don't we have an education secretary which or some such thing, which I'm sure is in her cabinet, and the mayor and her education person runs the schools? Because I'm assuming – People appointed by the mayor generally do what the mayor wants them to do, no?
12: Yeah, no, that's true. And in in some jurisdictions with mayoral control, you do have that form of government. You don't really have an intervening panel. But for the most part, you do. And I, you know, I think it's a good idea. That's how you get represent, you know, broader representation and participation from the community. You have regular meetings that are open to the public and people can come and testify. Mm-hmm. The mayor doesn't want to be the chief executive of the school system, uh, but the mayor wants to have a sort of control over, broadly speaking, policy and and, uh, and major strategies that are implemented. So I think having a board so that the community has a regular way to interact with the school system and, uh, and and members of that committee who have power and authority, I mean, they can have uh, they can have uh, you know, their own views on what needs to be done. And those views sometimes incidentally depart from the mayor's view on, on, on what needs to be done. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a good intermediary body um, that ensures community participation.
2: We're talking with Paul Ravill, our education man. You know, I'm not in favor of um, illegal teacher strikes. um, However, But the teachers in (laughs) Woburn had a very good point when they were fighting, at least in part, for higher pay for the uh, paraprofessionals in the classroom. They deal a lot of times with kids with special needs. They help out the teachers. I was stunned to learn. uh, that uh, in, in, In Quincy and New Bedford, apparently, these paraprofessionals, Don't even get the minimum wage in in the classroom. Uh, The Globe story pointed out to, I think it was Lexington, uh, where this uh, teacher that was a paraprofessional was getting $38,000 a year, less than half the average teacher's salary there. So there's a legitimate problem with pay for these uh, paraprofessionals seems me no
12: question no question i mean uh, that same article points out that 85% of the paras statewide make less than 30,000 yeah so 38,000 85% making less than 30 so yeah it's a poverty wage and uh, and they're having to work other jobs or having to go on welfare or food stamps or whatever to to uh, provide for themselves and it's just uh, you know they're part of the educational equation so i i think it's a perfectly legitimate issue for um uh, you know, for the MTA to be working on and bargaining for. And, uh, you know, we've got, we've become increasingly dependent as the special education population has increased in Massachusetts. The degree of need has increased and the pressure for inclusion, which means moving students with disabilities into the mainstream, has increased. You can't do that properly unless you have paras. So we absolutely need them. And uh, particularly in these times of labor shortages, uh, I know that districts are having difficulty attracting people to these roles, and part of that problem is undeniably the the lack of um, uh, adequate pay
1: for them. So it's a it's an important issue. Just to add to what Marjorie said about Woburn and that illegal strike in Malden, that uh, uh, some people I know thought was horrible. Uh, uh, Power professionals won a 24 percent increase in wages in the first year of the uh, new contract. So well, I'm very happy for it. them.
2: That well-deserved mm-hmm. pay raise, Jim. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was a central I think, issue I think, in the it illegal was like,
1: strike, Margery.
2: <laughs> it wasn't a legal strike.
12: Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just a matter of fact, Jim, right? I mean, it is illegal. But, but you know, that that's another question. I mean, that's a whole separate question. Should we should we have legal strikes of public employees and is that a good thing? Um, that's a different question in my mind. Should we pay fairly these, these uh, uh, paraprofessionals? And and you know, plaudits to the MTA for standing up for them. I mean, I'm not always in support of what the MTA is pushing for, but this kind of thing, I'm really, uh, I really think is the right. You to know, she,
1: next time you're here, let's talk about the strike issue, which uh, Governor Healy has weighed in on and said she is not supportive of the MTA did, legislation. We
2: did, we did, we ha- we talked about the strike DePaul? issue a couple of weeks. We had we a big did? fight about it. We yeah, we yeah, did. But but the three minute,
1: of us. Let's do it
12: again then. <laughs> it's an interesting. Commonwealth <laughs> Magazine. Michael Jonas did a good uh, piece He's on great. this recently saying that, you know, the farther people were from the front lines of education, the more likely they were to lend their support to the idea of strikes. Uh, The closer people are, you know, if you get down to the level of Maura Healy or Jeff Riley, the less likely they are to to uh, support the idea that, uh, you know, parents and students should be uh, pushed out of school
1: over bargaining issues. Well,
12: well
2: said Paul Revel. Well, How except about that, Jim?
1: For some of us who have been in strike <laughs> in the quasi public sector earlier yeah. in our lives yeah. sometimes the students and the clients actually benefit from that uh, that decision to
2: Well, I'm uh, not sure the students do. The teachers do. I'm not sure the tu- well, students do. Well, I would say do. if you
1: have paraprofessionals for example in Malden we just talked mm-hmm. about making a living wage as opposed to before, I would say there are two beneficiaries, the paraprofessionals and the kids to whom they provide services, don't you
2: okay, think? Okay, Jim. Thank well, you. We could, we no, could, I mean, we, I think
12: that's true. The question is, is, is an illegal strike necessary to get to that place? Well,
2: Yes. We can have a knockdown drag out next time. Well, I think time. we should. You know, Paul's here should. for a nice, pleasant interview, not another battle <laughs> royale.
1: No, let's battle have drag out. Let's do that <laughs> next <laughs> time. You yeah. and let's me. That. Let's do that.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so um, th- the governor has um, gotten some, some kudos for her uh, new budget proposal, uh, making a college more affordable, especially community college. So tell us what she's doing and what you think of it.
12: Well, I mean, the governor, uh, you know, does deserve the plaudits on this. I mean, I think it's high time that we do something about, you know, the finance of higher education. And, you know, what I like about the governor's approach generally in her budget, and particularly with regard to education and higher education specifically, is that she's really focused in on this notion of competitiveness. It will you know Massachusetts is only going to have an economic future if we have a highly educated workforce that can solve problems and and provide expertise that can't be found in other places around the country, other places that will be a lot less expensive in which to locate a business so if we're going to be competitive, we've got to have a highly educated workforce right now you know we're losing population in Massachusetts our higher education sector is is expensive. Uh, and the as, as fees keep rising, it's more and more prohibitive. And, you know, as a result of the pandemic and other factors, we have more people uh, and, and we have declining demographics in that age level moving away from higher education. So we've got to do something uh, to turn around the, the sort of 20 year, 30 year now public disinvestment in higher education and placing the burden on students. So she has done really uh, two things. I mean, she's number one, uh, declared a price freeze. So Tuition and fees, as I understand it from the proposal, I haven't read all the specific details. Tuition and fees at uh, uh, UMass, at the state universities and community colleges will be frozen for four years. In other words, you can predict what you're going to have to pay rather than be subject to um, uh, increases all along your time within school. You can predict what you're going to have to pay when you first enroll. Uh, The second thing is she's added... Um, uh, various quantities of money to scholarship and subsidy for the system itself, uh, drawing in part on some of the money that came from the millionaire's tax originally. So uh, I I think these are two big steps in the right direction. Uh, You know, as many people have commented, we're still, even if you freeze us where we are right now, right now we're not in a good place in terms of the affordability of higher education, Uh, for students. Public higher education is supposed to be, you know, the last resort for somebody who wants to get educated but can't afford the outsized prices that prevail in the private sector. And uh, we're a long way from making that readily accessible, and we've just got to do better. So she's, you know, she's put a clear indicator out there that this is a priority. She's going to move in that direction, and she's taken a couple of good steps.
1: And and by the way, I'm glad you mentioned what you mentioned. And for those business leaders making more than a million dollars a year were subject to the surtax, the millionaire's tax, knowing that a significant chunk of this went to making our workforce and our education system more competitive with the rest of the country, which from what I understand is the centerpiece of demands or desires of business leaders, Uh, they should feel a little bit better about uh, uh, that additional few bucks that they are uh, giving to the state every April 15th. We're talking <laughs> to Paul Revel.
2: So Paul Revel. apparently in particip- uh, anticipation of St. Patrick's Day, some of the kids up at UMass uh, engaged in the tr- annual tradition called the Bar- Blarney Blowout. And this, uh, for a while, they've in- indulged this uh, drinking fad uh, involving something called the Borg. So here a little sound from a TikTok from a college kid explaining how you make the Borg.
13: So first you need to a- a gallon of water. You wanna pour out about half of it. Now it's time to add your liquor. Today we're using Tito's vodka. I put in probably like a third of this. And the final real step in making a Borg is to add your Mia or some Crystalite. But I like to add some special juice, so I'm gonna throw in a Celsius. This is the sparkling wild berry Barn flavor. And then lastly, because it's only 1 p.m., we're gonna add some liquid IV so Oops. we don't get hungover at midnight. <laughs> It's really good. Everyone oh. reviewed it and also said it tastes really good. So happy snow day.
1: By the way, that so, kid's parents just called in and said how proud yeah, they are. So I just That's right. Well, apparently the,
2: the Borg drinking uh, and other drinking resulted in uh, 46 patients between 18 and 25 showing up at the local Cooley Dickinson Hospital and 32 different ambulances. So I, I, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, kids do overindulge in St. Patrick's Day and we can go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade in South Boston and, and see that kind of thing. But there is a seems to be kind of a bingy kind of drink drinking problem, what persists in college, instead of like, let's just go to a mixer and have a couple of beers thing. And we don't seem to be able to fix it.
12: Well, I mean, it's pervasive. I mean, the the, the power of TikTok to, to bring forward a new approach to doing this and one that, uh, you know, defies uh, law enforcement in certain ways. And, uh, you know, and, and lest I be accused of hypocrisy, I, you know, from time to time was my own uh, out of control drinker when I was in college, so I can't be holier than thou on this. But uh, but it seems to me, you know, this is by the way, two weeks in advance of St. Patrick's. That's days. right.
2: Starting early. But they're in training.
12: <laughs> Lord knows what's going to happen on the actual day itself. I, I sympathize with administrators. One of whom said she hadn't even heard of a Borg before, which puts her in the same category as me. But I'm yeah.
2: Well, well, you're right. There. If you have it in a water jug, then you are not you're going not to stop. bring attention to cops who may pull yeah. you over looking for beers. You get right. a water jug and the vodka, you may or may not be able to smell it. I don't Paul, know. Paul, have
1: you ever heard of the Amethyst Initiative? I love that. This is okay. uh, this. we've talked about this a lot through the years. This is a thing started more than ten years ago, I think, by the president of Middlebury College, where was it scores. Amherst? No, I think it was Middlebury. Middlebury actually, okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure. But uh, scores and scores of uh, college presidents. And administrators signed on to this thing where they thought the United States should take a relook at the drinking age in this country. And they thought that one of the reasons why there is this kind of bid drinking, et cetera, is because of the taboo nature of it. And I'm not sure they specifically embraced an 18 year old uh, drinking age, but they surely embraced a dialogue as to whether or not 21 sort of graduation time is too late to sort of stem this in the the bud.
2: Because the 18 year old year olds would be doing jello shots in their closet before they went out because they weren't allowed to drink in a normal fashion at a social event. They had to be 21. And so that it was teaching bad habits around liquor, as opposed to, you know, good social drinking habits around liquor.
12: Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I remember when we were kids, I grew up in Western Mass. And just across the border, you know, you could get alcohol at age 18 in New York. But you had to wait till 21. And and particularly that was the time of Vietnam War. We were saying, you know, you're sending people off to war to get killed by you can't buy a drink until they're 21. So there 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 are some real inconsistencies in that, you know, at the same time, I know that college administrators have, you know, historically torn their hair out about this because they know students will drink. Uh, It is illegal in their jurisdiction. And yet their capacity to enforce the state's laws on drinking are really limited, as we can see in UMass, you know, regularly and on most campuses where we have these kinds of episodes. And so, I mean, philosophically, theoretically, that, you know, that that argument uh, makes some sense to me culturally, you know, that we've, we've made it taboo, even though, you know, I mean, at high school level, we know kids are drinking. And I think you know, people who are concerned about road safety are worried that if you move the age down, then you make it possible, you know, for 16 years old, 15 years old, 14 year olds to get it. And and, uh, you know, they'll be out on the roads and things of that nature. So I'm not sure what the right answer. I mean, this is a really thorny issue, but I I sympathize with the college administrators who are trying to do something about it. And it, uh and they tried to get prepared, and it just got out of control at UMass.
2: Well, we're glad you got things under control, Paul Revel. After you get I mean, out of his college, life, yes, <laughs> yeah. you, you slowed I, down I your pace. Yeah, I
13: did.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of heavy drinking that goes on in the college years, right? And sometimes even into the early twenties. But anyway, thank you very much good for being with you, us today, Paul Revel. Appreciate it.
12: All right, good to be with thank you. you. Thank you.
2: Uh, Thank we, you. Yep, you too. We've been speaking with Paul Revel, former Secretary of Education, professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he leads the Ed Redesign Lab, his latest book, co authored with Lynn Sachs, a collaborative action for equity and opportunity, practical guide for school and community leaders. Okay, coming up, we have got a real treat for a Thursday. You're going to hear some great music up next, right here in the Brighton studio. We'll be joined. Uh, by Nina Freelon and Chelsea Green. They're here for the Boston Celebrity Series Jazz Festival. We're going to hear about that, and we're going to hear their sound. That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
1: back to Boston Public Radio. We'll be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. In 2022, the Celebrity Series of Boston took a chance on a new venue in South Boston, this spectacular Artists for Humanity epicenter. The string of shows ended up, no surprise, being a big hit. In the center is modern, intimate atmosphere. Drinks available. So they're trying their luck for a second time. Right now, they're calling it the Celebrity Series Jazz Festival. It started yesterday. It'll run through March 11th. Tomorrow night at 7, multi-Grammy-nominated singer Nina Freelon will perform alongside violinist Chelsea Green and Brandon McCune for more information, we'll give you this website again, CelebritySeries.org. And by the way, Nina's latest album, which I listened to last night, which is just otherworldly, Time Traveler. She's also got a podcast we'll discuss in a minute. Chelsea, for her part, released an EP in 2020. Listen to that, too. With the Chelsea Green and the Green Project called re Uh Nina and Chelsea join us now in Studio 3. They're going to perform for us in a couple of minutes. It's a thrill to meet you both. Thanks so much thank for being you. here. Thank yeah, you. It's good uh, to f- be here.
2: Well, thank you very much, both of you, for coming in. Your, your work is incredible. Uh, let's start with you, Nina. Uh, uh, you dreaded local angle. You're a Cambridge kid. I and am. Now, <laughs> you're back in town, so what was your deal in Cambridge? Fresh Pond,
14: anyone? <laughs> <laughs> Fresh
1: Pond, everyone, I think is the that's answer. Right,
14: that's right. I grew up Uh, in West Cambridge and ran those streets. We had a fabulous, um, you know, maybe everybody thinks their childhood was wonderful. Mine really
1: was. And you sang in a couple of churches in I Central did. Square and absolutely stuff. I did.
14: absolutely got my start in church. Absolutely. So,
1: and, Chelsea, you've got the dreaded local angle, too. You teach at Berkeley, <laughs> right, from time to time. And you perform solo with the Pops at one point?
15: I did. I had the very um, fortunate honor of performing with Rhiannon Giddens for oh one of the God. Pops concerts. Yeah, it was fantastic. So
1: how is it to be back in town for you after spending your ute, as they say, my ute. in this uh, part of the world there, Nina?
14: It's Way different. Like this studio wasn't here the last time I was here. And <laughs> yeah. everything around this area uh, just doesn't look, it doesn't look familiar where the venue is. Totally totally
1: different. Somebody's South Like, that, like
14: oh, oh, you have a gig in Southie? Uh-uh. Yes, I yeah. do. And you need to come to see to believe it.
1: Well, how many times have you played in a venue like this, a studio about three feet by three feet? I mean, this is pretty tight. This no? is primo, though. This yeah. is primo,
2: primo, intimate, intimate. Yes, intimate. You know, uh, uh, Nina, before I play and talk more about your music, um, I learned preparing to talk with you that you have a podcast, uh, Great Grief. You lost your husband to ALS, which was very difficult obviously. Tell us about your husband and and then tell us about the podcast you've created. I just love it. Oh, thank you so
14: much. Um, Great Grief is an opportunity for us to step away from our grief avoidant culture and just talk about it. It happens to everybody. Why don't we talk about it? And because I'm a singer, of course, I sing on the podcast. Uh, My husband, Phil uh, Freelon, was a a a wonderful husband, a great father. We were married for 40 years. He is also the architect of record on the African-American Museum of History and Culture. And he went to MIT, so there's another sort of local connection. And ALS is horrible. It is like the worst. So um, this podcast is a way for me to process my grief. It's a way for me to open it up for other people who've lost um, someone that they loved to talk about it and to just have a, uh, I wouldn't say a safe space, what is that anyway, but a brave space.
1: You know, we have a little piece from, you know, on this great grief, Marjorie and I are both listening this morning. We hear Nina in conversation about grief. In this clip, we hear from grief herself. Here it is.
14: Yeah, I'm in the room making noise, rearranging the furniture, you know, doing what I do. Almost always, folk get squirmy, feel a little awkward. I guess I'm used to it. You know, not receiving invitations to hang out and just kick it. Usually, folk just suffer my presence, avoid my gaze looking askance.
1: Again, check it out. It's called Great Grief. (laughs) So before these two wonderful souls perform, explain what the mission of this Chelsea Green and the Green Project is there, Chelsea Green. Well, you know,
15: I appreciate that question because there is not one singular mission. I think for me... What are the missions? Right, right. I, I am very passionate that all of us existing in life are improvisers. We all have to improvise every single day. I always say... A single mother is one of the most, <laughs> you know, award-winning um, masters of improvisation. And so with the Green I had Project... I of those, by yes, the way, so I know yes. that to be true. So I, I hope that through the project, through what I articulate through the violin, as I try to make it a musical instrument, not, not just a classical one, that it can speak to many different um, life patterns and how we can articulate our own voice uniquely through whatever we do in life.
1: Okay, so you're going to do a couple of numbers for us. What's the yeah. first one you're going to do? What, what are you doing there? Um, we're
14: going to take an old Eden Abes tune. Mm-hmm. You may know it as Nature Boy. Uh-huh. Probably Nat King Cole was the mm-hmm. first time we heard it. But um, Chelsea and I are going to do our own thing with it, with this lovely standard. <laughs> spoke of fools and kings this she said to me the greatest thing that you will ever ever learn is just to love And be loved
13: in return.
2: Oh, my God. God. Let me
1: tell you, I hate to make everybody jealous. The only thing better than listening to that was watching the two of you. How much have you two done together, Nina?
2: We
14: are actually soulmates.
1: You really are. Let me tell you. We
14: are soulmates. We don't want to talk about time because then you'll be like, oh, anybody can do this. But we are connected soul to soul. And that's what makes this possible. When she talked about, when Chelsea talked about improvisation, yeah. 99.9% of that is listening. But with a heart of a listener. You know, not just being quiet while somebody else talks. But mm-hmm. really listening for what is said and what is not said.
1: But you were like one, by the way. I I know, I mean, you really were, like watching you from five feet away. Do you, you know what I'm... Saying Chelsea it was like I, one person. I appreciate
15: that. Yeah, I that's mean, an awesome. Compliment. That that is a very high compliment for sure. Well, you know, you. we wow. have been
2: we have been treated to that incredible. That King Cole's calling in right yeah, now. Let me it's right. Tell you. Uh, uh, let yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> We've we've been treated, Chelsea, to incredible uh, violin performances in recent days. Last yeah. week we had people in that were going to be in the Celtic Christmas, uh, oh, Celtic St. Awesome. Patrick's Day sojourn, yeah. you know, playing uh, uh, music from Ireland, of course, in Great Britain. And then, early this week we had Mark O'Connor's wife, Maggie. I guess Fantastic. they're more Americana. Yeah, uh, yeah. they came in yeah. and they played in the studio. And now you are playing a whole. I mean, it's the versatility. I guess what I'm trying to say is, violin is a rather versatile instrument you i made mean, my this, day yeah
15: <laughs> that's that's the goal Yes, yeah. indeed.
2: and it's hard i don't think people realize how hard it is to play right and get those notes exactly right it can be a tricky one yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. it's kind of similar going to the room. voice
15: it is you know
2: because
14: there's a relative is. sensibility of mm-hmm. what you feel in your body and what you hear and you make these minute adjustments or not
13: <laughs> There's mm-hmm, also mm-hmm, not,
14: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and when you're playing with another, this is what I'm so excited about for this concert.
13: Yeah,
14: it's conversational, right? Yes. It's like we're having an intimate conversation, an intimate musical conversation. Mm-hmm. So I'm, ex- I'm psyched about that. And
1: by the way, if people have not been to this venue, I've done. I've it's been great. to a number of things there. It is spectacular. It is just into, It's just beautiful, and it's intimate, and it's just great. You know, we talked about your late husband, who was obviously very accomplished. You've got a kid who's pretty accomplished. And you and your kid made history last year. Did they not? Did we you not, did. Nina? At the we Grammys? Did. What was the deal? At the
14: Grammys. My, well, first of all, I have three children. Family politics. <laughs> uh, he's the youngest, Pierce. Pierce and I made history by being the first mother and son. To be nominated in separate categories in the same That's Grammy year,
1: yeah, yeah. And wasn't he trying to reach you on the phone? I realized. Oh my day, gosh! You didn't even know you'd been well, nominated. Well, so they,
14: they announced the Grammys, the 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 winners uh, of the nominate the nominees on like a. It was on what was it on TV Yeah, or it it's, was like super Instagram early in
15: the morning? Yeah, on it was early, and early, yes. in the,
14: and so mm-hmm. he he was. He said, "Mom, you want me to come over so we can watch together?" I was like, "No, I don't. I'm going to walk the dog." So his category children's music came up first, and of course he was excited. Yeah. And while I was out walking the dog, my category was read and he heard my name. So That's when so I came funny. in the house and he's you know, when I he's like, "Mom." I was like, "What's <laughs> wrong with you? What happened?" He was crying. He was Aww. like, "Mom, you were" uh, uh, uh nominated too <laughs> that's
1: awesome by the way we're going to say it another couple of times celebrity series.org org. get tickets for any yes. of the nights of this four night thing including these two wonderful players uh and performers uh, tomorrow before you perform w- one more here uh, uh uh chelsea uh i think what nina was saying to me because she didn't want to say it directly <laughs> Is this the first time? Is this the first time you've performed together? I mean, sort of
15: officially. Oh, you're not Not, not officially. Okay. I mean, because honestly, we were together previously. Um, on the West Coast. Oh, right. and Desert. And yeah, in Palm Desert we did an engagement that oddly felt as about as cold as it does here today um, in Palm Desert. But, uh, you know, it isn't so musically, this is not our first connection.
1: So before you play, whatever you're going to play and perform, whatever you perform, sure. what's it like pl- uh, per- uh, performing with Nina, Chelsea?
15: It is... It is a extraordinary otherworldly experience <laughs> only because of how connected she is to her art. Uh-huh. And and I say that it's such a powerful and, and dynamic um, iteration of what I imagine as, you know, a musician to be that one um with with your voice
1: and your art okay. and the lyric. Now your yeah. turn, Nina. What's it like oh, uh, singing with Chelsea?
13: <laughs> see,
14: you know, somehow certain people like put you on the spot, <laughs> like like the, the spot. spot. This is, Chelsea this is, is an amazing musician, oh, but more than that, I'm, we're playing each other's hearts. Oh, boy. That's what's happening. If you feel something, it's because we are connected in in a heart to heart way. She's my sister. And we are both, we come from different backgrounds. We have different musical experiences. But when we come into this setting, heart
1: to heart. Do you know you sing okay. when you talk? Do you know that? I'm sure you've been told we wanna, that we wanna We want to get
2: a little bit more of what we felt, your first song again, with the second song, Heart to Heart. So what are you going to play for us? There's an old, you know, all the songs I sing are old, except for the
14: ones that I wrote. And maybe they're old, too, by definition. But um, Hoagy Carmichael. Uh, Wrote a song called Skylark. Mm -hmm.
1: We're going to do that one. Okay. Nina Freelon and Chelsea Green.
14: can be is there a meadow in the mist where someone shadows and the rain to a blossom covered lane and in your lonely flight haven't you heard the music in the night wonderful music gypsy serenading the moon oh Skylark. I don't know if you can find these things but my heart is riding on your
13: wings
14: if you see them Anywhere, won't you lead me, if you see them anywhere, I
2: We've been speaking and listening to and hearing the amazing music of Nina Freelon and Chelsea Green. Their show is going to be this Friday night, 7 o'clock, at the Arts for Humanity Epicenter in South Boston as part of the Celebrity Series Jazz Festival. This is just a hint of how wonderful the whole event is going to be. For more information and to get tickets, go to celebrityseries.org. Thatcelebrityseries.org.
1: You were spectacular, Nina bro. and Chelsea. I mean, Thank
2: you so so much for coming, Thank and that you. was a Thank that was so an amazing wow. treat. Okay, yikes. from the sublime to the less, uh, much less sublime. After a quick break, Marie Kondo. You may remember, remember her. She was the global leader in living for a clutter-free life of serenity. Well, guess what? Now that she's had a couple of of, of kids, she's doing a flip flop. She's embracing the mess. She, the woman that told us to declutter ruthlessly doesn't think we need to do that anymore. And we're going to open the lines and ask you if you can embrace the mess and if you feel conned by the queen of clean. 877-301-8970, 877 877-301-8970. is our number to call us or text us. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 897-GBH.
1: Back to Boston Public Radio, uh, Jim Browdy and Marjorie and live at the library tomorrow. Let me just repeat: they both unbelievable, were just unbelievable. unbelievable. And by the way, it's an intimate venue down there. You get to be close to the players, the performers, yep. and they were both just terrific. And a so, lot of
2: kids' artwork on the walls down yeah, there. It's a, yeah, it's they, a great place. It's great
1: it's place. And in an interview she gave with the Washington Post in January, I didn't even know about this till today. The Queen of Decluttering herself, Marie Kondo, admitted. She's gotten more lax about tidiness since having her third child. In her new book, she wrote, quote, tidying up means dealing with all the things in your life. What do you really want to put in order? Now she's got TikTok influencers on our side, though you could make the case that teenagers have always been pro-mess. Still on a piece out in the New York Times, I think it was this morning, or maybe yesterday, this trend is a mess. Influencers <laughs> on TikTok are being unabashed about the clutter in their own lives. Gone are the days of... You know, tossing your dirty clothes under the bed, shoving everything in a closet before company arrives. We want to hear about what messiness means to you. If it's brought you solace, given you space like Marie Kondo to focus on things that matter more, is messiness the hot new it lifestyle trend that some are heralding or all of us just embracing the mess we've been living with? all along. Our number is 877-301-8970. I have to say proudly, if you've ever seen Studio 3, you know that Marjorie and I have really <laughs> embraced the mess in our work. Again, 877- 301-8970. Not everybody's happy with Marie Kondo. Did you see the thing online, that a lot of uh, uh, women con, are saying if, they feel K-O-N-N-E-D. Yeah, yeah exactly. con by uh, Who Ms. Kondo. Them? Yeah. But you're, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, I am I I say organized mess, if that doesn't sound oxymoronic. I like things like – I don't put things away so everything is tidy and everything is clean. But I like things sort of organized Jim, in their messiness. You know what I'm trying to say?
2: No, you're like a pack rat. Well, I you're am little, sort of like, like a pack rat. You're a rat. hoarder. I am a hoarder. You're the person that could have been on her show. Remember her show? She was trying to take care of this couple early on in the, in the show, and, and they walked into their house. And they had books and papers and I magazines up I to do. the ceiling. Up to the ceiling in their house, and you went into the basement, and they had like it, it looked like the Sanchez workshop. They had like nine million Christmas decorations and stuff like that. They were hoarders. I was very influenced by Marie Kondo because I am a, a, a messy person and I hate being a messy person. and I learned a lot from her about how to be unmessy. But I think once I've you have thrown a kid, out
1: like scores and scores of boxes of things.
2: Don't you spend entire of vacations throwing out I, boxes I do, it's of thrilling.
1: Things. But you know what I'm gonna do now? Bring them all back in. I mean— <laughs> Now that I've seen that she's done a 180, 877 301 Have you embraced the mess, I guess, is our topic for the rest of... Today's show. I'm still shaken, by the way, from those two. Oh women. my God! They were just, I mean,
2: that was phenomenal. That,
1: they are. That really, was phenomenal. We're so God. lucky
2: that we got a chance to hear them. They're phenomenal. In any case, but anyway, get back to Marie Kondo. Yeah. I mean, where are you in this whole mess situation? I think if you got little kids, you could just forget it. I mean, things are going to be a mess. The toys are everywhere. You have the toy box that doesn't work. The kids are throwing everything all over the place. Or if you have teenagers, my idea was just shut the door and hope that uh, you know that uh, too many rodents don't get in there because the kids, the teenagers, are, are like total slobs. But I, I do like the idea of a decluttered place. That I aspire to be a decluttered person, and I have not achieved that. In fact, when I was in my 20s, I lived in a two-family apartment downstairs, got robbed, and the cops came upstairs. They knocked on our door. They opened the door and said, oh, looks like you got ransacked, too. <laughs> and I said, well, no, actually.
1: Do you remember we had a Pulitzer? <laughs> you were Pulitzer- not ransacked. Before we go to the Coles and the text, we had a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and it's horrible. I forget her name for a second. I'll think mm-hmm. of it in a minute who offered to clean up your
2: mess oh, in the
1: studio um, for you. Oh, I, yes. I'll think of Ann, her name. And,
2: this... oh, shoot, I can't think of name. We'll yeah. figure out who
1: she is in a minute. That's how bad it is, that our guests, Pulitzer Prize-winning guests, decide they're going to help Marjorie declutter her life. Yeah, mostly it's Jim stuff.
2: It's gym stuff in the there. That's
1: actually not true. Colin, you're in South Boston. You're first on Boston Public Radio on the messing Hour. Hello there. Or the hello,
4: hello. So hello. Great chat with you folks. I feel like I've been bothering you a lot lately, but well, clutter and oh boy do we have an interesting relationship so So, i just went from living with my mom mm -hmm. 23 years old i just got cut loose the umbilical cord got cut yeah and i had to go
2: oh oh we lost colin we
1: lost you for a second colin after umbilical cord we lost you so take it from there we're going to put Colin on hold because I really want to talk to Colin. Oh. We have a horrible connection. We'll uh, hope he can get in a better spot and we'll return to him since he has just cut the umbilical cord, I think, days ago and is now out on his own. And we'll see how he's dealing with that. 877 301 By the way, Marie Kondo's original advice, before she did a 180... Is what is it? One, does it spark joy? You hold up the yes. item. Yes, that was really helpful. And two, if you haven't used something, is it in six
2: months? I think it's a year. Oh, oh whatever yeah. it is, toss you, the damn thing. You, it's well, really helpful. you don't just helpful. toss it, Jim. A, there's a process. What is it? You you hold the item in your arm, say it in your hands, say it's a sweater, it. you thank it, and you thank it for yeah. its service, and and you say how much you loved it and yeah. how it had sparked joy in you previously, but, no but it no longer sparks joy uh-huh. in you, so you either decide to give it to Goodwill,
1: boomerangs, or
2: or, or boomerangs. That's right, or you throw it out but you can't throw out textiles that's that's well, let's environmentally not get into that. that's a new problem right let's so, try
1: Colin one more time in south boston okay. we're post cutting of umbilical cord colin take it from there
4: okay so i had to go from a bedroom full of my stuff yeah. to a broom closet apartment with two roommates Oof. and it was probably the hardest thing ever to get rid of these things even though you know clutter is is cluttering the mind cluttering the life and I just found it so hard to throw out these participation medals. And I think, you know, <laughs> seeing that 180 makes me almost think, wow. So how did it go? I, I know it was done. hard. How did it go? So I'll, I'll give you one anecdotal uh, Please moment of the decluttering. Please. So last night, it was December 16th, a dark, cold evening. Mm-hmm. My brother rented a U-Haul truck, put the last of my junk in it, and said, all right, throw out what you want, take the rest to your apartment, this mm-hmm. is it. And we were in the square one mall parking lot in Saugus, throwing out all manner of things, of Mm knickknacks, books, et cetera, Mm -hmm. into this dumpster. And then I took the rest of my apartment, and that was all. And it was, wow, so freeing, yet I felt like so much of my childhood was torn away. But. Really, what does it matter if I remember the things? You Let me know? tell you, there Virgin calls a, the where
1: I laugh and I cry in the same call. And Colin, I did in yours. Thank you very much for your uh, contribution. Jim, there.
2: I've got the author that we couldn't remember the Who? name. I'm ashamed of us because she's a great author. Yeah. Anne Patchett. No, it wasn't she Ann wrote
1: Patchett. Bell she Canto. was here, but it wasn't her. She wrote Bel
2: Canto, Commonwealth, State of Wonder. Yeah, it was Anne? No, Patchett I know we had
1: her, but she wasn't the one that cl- – was she the
2: one that offered to clean up your Yes, Okay, Anne Patchett You know why was? Her, another one of her books was called? No. Truth and Beauty. And she came into our studio and she was absolutely horrified. Well,
1: her most famous book for which she won the Pulitzer, I believe, was Messy Room, Messy Mind. Was it not? <laughs> I believe that was it. You know her. what Marie
2: Kondo also did? She had a certain way of folding things up. You're like you're supposed to fold if you're underpants, if you're a woman, into like up into these little like a like a little package and I thought you so roll they, them, don't you roll them? Well you kinda of roll them, yeah. yeah. But and so they would all stand up the right way in your drawer and you're yeah. supposed to roll up the t-shirts organizing your drawers was a big theme yeah. of hers too and it worked it really and the other thing that was great about her yeah. if you open your closet you can't find anything in your closet yeah. you know i had this problem for years and years sure. and years you're supposed to arrange them by height so that your long dresses are on the left mm-hmm. the shorter dresses when did you do
1: that by the way i forgot i, I did what? it i no, did, did do it not. yes
2: i did i still i have maintained a lot of her wow. uh, advice and it's really helped me i mean i'm not looking f- forever for everything mm-hmm. and there's your your closet just goes from the longest up mm-hmm. to the shortest so at the other end of the right hand side wow. are you know, blouses or short t-shirts it's a brilliant way to organize your brilliant closet.
1: brilliant i'm proud of you too joan boston what's up hi guys hi. uh i have a little
16: slightly different take on this Please. Uh,
1: i became a student of the feng shui sure.
16: there you I go always yeah. I, I always pronounce it wrong no
1: that's close and enough.
16: basically when you keep the place in your place in order uh, it allows the positive energy or the positive chi to flow.
13: Mm-hmm, of That's right. So,
16: uh, so when I clean out a closet, which I, for some reason, have to do all the time,
5: mm-hmm.
16: uh, right after I finish cleaning it out, sometimes the next day, I'm a freelance artist, the yeah. next day sometimes I get a phone call, I get a gig, because the positive chi is able to move through the room.
2: That's unbelievable. Okay, Joe, explain feng shui to people.
16: And it has happened a dozen times to
1: put a wow uh, that is uh, haunting Joe. Haunting. Feng shui is yeah, just sort of like it. arranging stuff in your life. Yeah, to like create you're... like the perfect balance kind of thing. Aren't is that feet... not it?
2: I, I said Could... your bed's supposed it's... to be that your feet are toward the door so in case you die in your sleep they can carry you out feet first. There's a, that...
1: there
16: are correct. There are huge it's there are books and books and books yeah. Right yeah. on the subject. And what the beauty of it is you don't have to uh follow the whole thing. You take bits and pieces of it, and it works. Uh, the, the 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 Russian Jewish feng shui advisor who lives in Brookline, you know who you are, turned me on to this a few years ago. And um, basically, you don't have to uh, prescribe to the religious aspects of things. Uh, but but for me, it works. And, and and I I'll finish up with with just a couple of weeks ago, I cleaned out uh, a space full of junk. And I was expecting, I was almost expecting to hear from somebody. And nobody reached out to me uh, until five days later. I realized that someone had messaged me through my Instagram, which I never checked. Oh. Sure enough, oh. sure enough, I had a huge project to bid on. I didn't get the job, but it was a huge project, a two-day gig to
1: bid on uh, the day after I did this clean out. So that was, it, for me, it worked. That was fabulous. Time? That was another fabulous call. Joe, okay. thank you for that.
2: Well, maybe I don't think you're doing I feng shui, no, my no, and no. Although I did find a coat. I was looking for a coat, uh, moving around a coat. Really? And I found my AirPods, earbuds, whatever you call them. The ones you dropped in the mulch? Different, different. <laughs> Not the ones oh, I dropped ones. in the mulch. Okay. No. Okay. Paul from Worcester says, As much as it pains me to agree with Jim, I also have a well-organized whole bunch of stuff, probably because I repurpose things like styrofoam into coolers when bringing food to others, or old clothes into shop rags. And... A messy workshop is a dangerous workshop.
1: By the way, he brought food to us today. You're not in the studio, but let me tell you, it was unbelievable. Did
2: you eat it all? Paul,
1: thank you. I didn't eat yours.
2: Thank you.
1: They ate yours. Will you
2: bring it? Will you? (gasps) Joel and Ashland. Mine's gone.
1: Sorry, you got to come to work if you want the food. Joel and Ashland. You to me tomorrow? Joel and Ashland, you're next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the the un well, whatever. Hello, Joel. Welcome.
7: Good afternoon. And to you, Uh, many-time caller. Um, I just wanted to talk about my wife, uh, when I moved into her apartment about 40 years ago, 40 uh, years ago, yeah, uh, 40 years ago, yeah. um, I came home from work and wanted to get out of my suit and get into my jeans and I'm looking around for my jeans mm-hmm. and I can't find them anywhere. So I said to her, do you see my jeans? Uh, you know, I want to change into them. She says, Oh, you left them on the floor. I figured they were garbage. So I threw them out.
1: All right. Ah! Well, that's not unreasonable, is it?
7: He <laughs> <laughs> also took a cantaloupe and cleaned the seeds off on it. So, uh, yeah, I definitely had to clean those pants up, but I'm still with her 40 years later. Yeah, so, haven't Joel, been putting have your you...
1: pants on the floor yeah. since, have you, my friend? Yeah,
2: have you cleaned up your act? Are you a neat uh, guy now? Gonna I'm not going to answer. Oh, definitely not.
1: Oh, really? I'm I can better. hear it in his voice. I
2: don't
1: mm-hmm. think so, Joel.
2: I'm better, but I'm not, I wouldn't claim to be good.
1: Have a melon on us, Joel. Thank you very much for the uh, for the call. That's a pretty good story there, too.
2: What was that TV show? The Odd Couple. One guy was a real neat guy. The other guy was real slob. And they were. It's like a pretty apartment. famous
1: Neil Simon play before yeah. it was a television yeah. show. Yeah. Water Mathow for- and Tony Randall were yes. they not the originals? I think.
2: Judith, and it to it. Thank you for calling.
1: And who? Jack Lemmon. Thank you, John. Of course, John Parker knows Jack Klugman and Tony Randall on TV. Courtesy of John Parker. Judith from Katuit you're next. Hi.
9: Hi. This uh, is my first call to you. I've listened for so long, and oh, I'll tell thrilled. you, I really had to wait for something I feel strongly about. Excellent. And oh, my good. hatred. My hatred for Marie Kondo <laughs> is so deep and intense. <laughs> oh, do tell. Why, Why? That, so, so my best friend is... Uh, an ace at organizing, and years ago she brought this book to my attention. You have to read this. And I started reading it, and I said, this woman is mentally disturbed. Mm, I mean, she's a a psychological bully. If you read the first few chapters of her book, she talks about, as a child, organizing her siblings and her parents' drawers. That's right. Like, oh, my God, how dare she? Like and the, the withering way she'd go on t v and just shake her head at how one of the hosts would fold an undershirt i mean, oh my goodness, I mean her aesthetic is very sterile, fine, mm-hmm. but to impose that on the world i i'm I'm just outraged that she's become so popular and she's become this cult leader, and now she's coming down and saying that she was wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's is one of the great calls of the got 21st century. Another book century. out of it. Yeah, another, <laughs> and she's book,
9: got out of another it. book out of it.
1: Out of it. And I know.
9: So, Judith, are you, you feeling better now it, that yeah. she's
1: done a 180, or you resent her even more? Oh,
9: no. My hatred just like. Dug
1: another six feet deep. <laughs> Dug another six feet.
9: Yeah, okay. Oh, Judith, you're so. A
1: Judith, we really hope you feel passionately about something else really soon, and call yeah. us again. That was a perfect way to end yeah, the show. Yeah, I Thank know you. she did
2: do a nice job in my closet. She my really closet, hates her. She does. Well, I can see. She there doesn't was... hate her.
1: She really hates her. Yeah,
2: didn't she rearrange everybody's dolls and you know all this kind of stuff? I mean, literally, she's running around. She's barely out of diapers. She's running around arranging everything in the house. There was something going on there. Let me tell Jill. you, if
1: you're living in Katuit, watch out for <laughs> Judith. So. I don't want to <laughs> cast dispersions, but watch out. That's right. Okay, okay, we're done.
2: We are done. Thank you very much for listening wow. today to Boston Public Radio. And keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast. Tomorrow we are going to be live at the Boston Public Library with our uh, with Boston Medical Center's Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett. She's going to take our questions and yours, not just on COVID, but on other medical questions you might have. I'm going to ask her about medical tourism in Mexico that I didn't realize was as point. big of a deal a uh, as it apparently is. And even for like dental care. GBH's Callie Cross is going to be with us as well. NYU Medical ethicist Art Kaplan, media maven Sue O'Connell, and a live music Friday performance from Boston's LGBTQ+ aligned chorus, Coro Allegro. You want to thank you our Left crew. one
1: thing out. You left what? Judith is going to come do a 20-minute thing about. Marie Kondo, <laughs> live from the Boston Public Library.
2: I, I love her. My I mean, God. she's, you know, I think a lot of people have been on Judas uh, side. She was on for a side. lot of
1: people, she was.
2: Okay. We want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Nicole Garcia, Hannah Laws, our engineer, John the Parker, back to tell us what the movie was in 1972 that starred Jack Lemmon or <laughs> didn't star Jack Lemmon. And our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. Thank you very much for tuning in. Jim, thank you very much, and please bring my food tomorrow to the Boston Public no, Library. Unfortunately, it's a little late. Oh, it's a little late? Okay. We brought you
1: some other stuff, <laughs> so we'll take that. Okay, okay, okay. Fine.
2: I'm Marjorie Egan.
1: I'm Jim Browdy.
2: Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you can tune in tomorrow. I hope you had a fun time today, and uh, have a great afternoon. Bye.